and welcome to another episode of Flying High with Flutter. I'm your host, Alan Wyma. Today I'm with Matt Carroll. This is our Thanksgiving extravaganza, I guess we could say, right? That's right, our Thanksgiving special. South Park, I think, had one. They had like a COVID Thanksgiving special. And now we're going to have the Flying High with Flutter Thanksgiving special. What was this year's South Park special? Was it this year? It just came out? No, I think it was I think it was last year they had that, if I remember correctly. Uh, what, what was that? I, I don't know. Can we even talk about that? I don't know if people would be offended it's, or it's not. Probably, it's probably safer not to go into any of the details. What is it? Go to Paramount Plus, anybody who wants to go watch South Park. You know, my favorite was when they tried to collect cans of food and everybody brought in cream corn, three cans of cream corn. Do you remember that? I, vaguely. I don't remember what the punchline was on that, but I think I remember something with cream corn. So Garrison was like, we got to do better than cream corn, cream corn, and another can of cream corn. <laughs> Just picking them up and reading them. Yeah. Uh, that was great. Yeah. Speaking of that, I mean, so how, so we're just talking about Thanksgiving, right? So your Thanksgiving, I mean, obviously I know, but people at home, I mean, how was it? My Thanksgiving was, uh, was good. It was uneventful. As we were talking about, I sat down, watched some American football, real football, and uh, ate some, some pizza, supreme pizza with cheese in the crust. And it was great. And now I'm here. So I'm full, stuffed. And now we get to sit down and talk flutter and dart for however long you want to. So I want to talk about my Thanksgiving, right? It was go horrible. It. it was horrible, <laughs> to be honest. Well, that, yeah, good way to set the mood with your audience. Tell us about your horrible Thanksgiving. I mean, as somebody who's grown up with American style Thanksgiving, right? We went to this, um, we had Thanksgiving lunch at the company. We went to this place, um, was very interesting. First, we arrived. Uh, we you know we booked a table because we don't know how many people are going to be there. The restaurant was all about chickens. It's called Big Birdie, I think. So they're very famous for their chicken. So we thought, okay, if you can do one bird, why can't you do the other bird? Well, there there might be an answer to that. It might be a very different cooking yeah. process, especially if you want the Thanksgiving style turkey. Well, let's let's talk about that one, right? So the food. Uh, well, first of all, we arrived. I arrived late because I was in another meeting and, uh, you know, we arrived and, and I said, okay, you know, did you order? My admin said no. And I, so I flagged the waiter. He said, oh yeah, you guys already ordered. Because first she called there and said, do you have Thanksgiving turkey? They said, yes. She said, okay, I book a table. So you figured that would be the conversation. And then we waited around for a while. Nothing happened. And so we asked another waiter, hey, where's the food? They said, you didn't order yet. So we were really confused. <laughs> And finally, the food came out, right? And they brought one small bowl of mashed potatoes, one small bowl of uh, gravy, one small bowl of the runniest cranberry sauce I've ever seen. I mean, basically, it would look like cranberry juice at this point with some berries inside. And chorizo. I don't know why chorizo. That was uh, interesting. Maybe they thought you were celebrating Mexican Thanksgiving. I don't know, but it's also a Filipino dish too. So, and all the waiters are everything in Hong Kong are usually Filipino. So they were Filipino. I think all the staff was Filipino. And uh, yeah, that was weird. So we all had to share these dishes and I asked them, is there going to be double of these because we have like 10 people? And they were like, no, that's it. Just one small bowl. And we had to just kind of pass it around. Uh, but it, they did bring us a giant turkey. So that was uh, the positive thing. And uh yeah, that was uh, interesting. But the, the turkey was probably the driest turkey I've ever had and the least flavorful. Uh, so, yeah, it was a little bit sad. You got to fly back to America for Thanksgiving from now on. Yeah, I think so. But I would like to give, you know, my employees a, a little bit of American culture. Just maybe try an American restaurant next time. Sounds like a good idea. But uh, now bringing it back to a positive note, right? 
there's a lot of cool stuff happening i think in uh, in flutter uh, i haven't seen many of your videos coming out recently I, have you been slowing down on video output yeah i've pretty much been solely focused on some proprietary work for a client for the last i don't know what it's been four or five months now uh i can't really go into details on that yet i am working on something for them that i'm really hoping we're going to open source when it's all done and and then i can come back and talk all about those challenges but it's been a pretty deep project. So I've been solely focused on that. I haven't had my uh, Flutter Clone Wars videos out in many months. Uh, and I ha haven't even had Flutter Bounty Hunters videos out. But maybe that'll change in the in the new year. Maybe I'll get some more videos out. I do want to put videos out on the Flutter Bounty Hunters channel that help to educate about production development practices. Because as I bring more people onto the Flutter Bounty Hunters, we need to align on practices, right? And so either I can sit there and teach everybody the same thing over and over, or I could produce videos that they can watch, they can learn, but also the community can learn from those same videos. So that's something that's on my mind. Yeah, speaking of the Flutter Bounty Hunters, uh, is that still going strong? I mean, how was the, uh, how was the uh, traction so far? We're still primarily focused on the same set of projects, which are all of the Super Editor projects. So let me back up here. I, obviously, I've been on the show twice before, so some people in your audience know who I am and what I do. But like, let me back up and explain for those who are new who I am and what I do. Um, so I, you know, my name is Matt Carroll. I was an Android developer for the better part of a decade. I spent three years working at Nest on their Android app. It, at, at, at the end of my time at Nest is when I discovered Flutter. And then I transferred to the Flutter team in the first half of 2018. I was on the Flutter team for two years. I left the Flutter team at the beginning of 2020 to go off and do Flutter education and consulting and corporate training and contract development, open source development. My most recent focus is this organization called the Flutter Bounty Hunters, which is why I'm wearing this awesome hat and these sexy sunglasses. I'm the chief of the Flutter Bounty Hunters and we are a remote team of developers that work exclusively on open source Flutter and Dart packages. Our biggest package, the one that we spent the most time on, we've gotten the most investment is called Super Editor. Super Editor is a document editing toolkit for Flutter apps. So any document editor that you need to build for your app, whether it's a productivity app, a journaling app, an email client, a blog editor, you can use Super Editor to create your own custom kind of text editor. That project has been primarily funded by a company called Superlist. Anybody who watched IO this year, you would have seen a video featuring Superlist. Um, it's also been funded partially by Turtle and Clearful. And I'm in talks with some companies that may also add more funding for their own features beyond that point. So a moment ago, you asked me what's going on with the Flutter Bounty Hunters. Most of our effort is still focused on Super Editor, which actually isn't just, it's not just one kind of widget or one package. So Super Editor, the package, includes the document editor, it also now includes a reader experience, which remind me in a minute to come back and talk about the Flutter Bounty Hunters blog, because that'll tie in. Uh, we also have a completely custom text field implementation. Uh, probably a year, year and a half ago, Turtle was doing some work and they, they couldn't get the built-in Flutter text field to do what they needed. So they came to us and said, hey, we're going to fund you to build a completely new text field that's more configurable and composable. And that resulted in us building super text field. So all three of those pieces are in the Super Editor package. But then there's also a package called Super Editor Markdown, 
where we parse Markdown into the Super Editor document structure so that you can turn Markdown into a document. We also have Super Text Layout. We had to reinvent some of Flutter's text layout to get selection and carrots and some of these effects working correctly. And we also have Attributed Text, which allows you to take your, your strings and take sections of the string and associate metadata, like this part is italics or bold or this is a link all the stuff that you need in an editor. And it's in a much, much more convenient manner than uh, Flutter's, what's it technically called? Text span. So Flutter has text span for rendering that stuff, but that's totally unusable from an editing perspective. So we give you attributed text. All of those pieces together are what I mean when I say super editor. That remains our primary focus. And I am happy to say that uh, most day-to-day -day work on Super Editor has now moved to Angelo Sylvester. So he joined the Flutter Bounty Hunters. He's been doing a great job with Super Editor. Uh, he's, he's worked through a lot of the code. He's figured out how it works. He's fixed a lot of bugs. He's added features. Um, he files issues that are very well written. He files pull requests that are very well written. Uh, and so I'm really happy with his work and he continues to do work in Super Editor for the Flutter Bounty Hunters. Okay, that's you guys are expanding, right? That's that's awesome. I thought um, there was some stagnation on there. I mean, it's still. I'll, I'll be honest. It's still not as fast at, of growth as I would hope. What I will say is that there have been a lot of developers who have offered to help, and I'm really happy about that. The challenge is that I, I have to find companies to provide funding on the other side, because the I, I guess there's even more information that I failed to mention. So the way that we operate is companies actually pay for us to build these open source packages we solve the specific set of problems that the funding company needs. So like they get what they need for their app, but then we open source that to everyone. So, so no one has to solve that problem again. By paying us, you get a specific solution. By being a member of the community, you get whatever we create for free at the other side of that. And this gives us an opportunity to bring community developers into the Flutter Bounty Hunters. Like this isn't a full-time job. You, you work your main job, but you're also a Flutter Bounty Hunter. And as work comes in, I will uh, funnel those funds through the Flutter Bounty Hunters to you, the community developer who's contributing. But to do that, I have to find companies that understand the value proposition and I have to get them funding a project. Uh, and that's, it, it's a tough sell. Not, I think the value is very clear, but not every company out there really sees it initially. So it's kind of a long road. And anybody in the audience who might work for a company that would like to fund open source packages, please reach out to me. I'd love to get more funders in there. And when we do, like I said, there are literally dozens of developers who have asked to be a part of the team. I'd love to get them working on stuff, but the the money has to come first. Yeah, yeah, that that that's true. I wish there was some kind of Flutter Foundation like we have in the Rust community where like they get funding from these big corporations like Fang, right? All those different big companies. And then they have grants actually where you can apply and you can get funding for these kind of projects. That'd be awesome to have, which is what you're basically trying to do, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the Flutter Bounty Hunters could be seen as filling that role. I've talked with, with certain well-known people in the Flutter community specifically about the concept of a Flutter Foundation. Now, when I spoke to them about that, it wasn't so much about funding models as it was setting up a cohesive vision for what the Flutter community wants the Flutter team to build and to help build it. Because this idea that simply looking at the number of thumbs up on GitHub is going to lead Flutter in the right direction. I think that's kind of silly. That's a pretty anemic way to understand requests for the roadmap. 
Uh, so I just I we discussed this idea of let's create the Flutter Foundation, which will assemble the most prolific companies using Flutter, as well as the most prolific people building tools with Flutter. And let's use that to identify the things that Flutter really needs to produce. The, the challenge with something like that is it's not just a little thing on the side. Like it doesn't just happen. Whoever's involved really needs to get together. You, you write uh, documentation, you put up websites, you, you assemble or attend conferences, and you have to spread the word unless or until those parties are ready to invest in that level of effort. We're just not going to have that concept of a Flutter foundation. But I am doing my best over here uh, on the Flutter bounty hunters side to create open source funding models. And so to the extent that anybody wants to help with that, I welcome the help, especially on the funding side. And perhaps, perhaps if Flutter bounty hunters becomes successful enough, it will prompt the creation of the Flutter foundation like you're talking about. Yeah, that that would be interesting. I mean, what, because we have Google stewarding everything, right? So if we just take a look at uh, kind of the history of Rust, right? Mozilla was basically doing most of the work and then they had a giant layoff and then everybody kind of scrambled and then Rust Foundation was created, right? So yeah, well, let's, let's, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to promote that. I'm just trying to say, this is what happened, a big event. But you know this also, right? As someone who's been working for a while, like big events are what cause big changes for better or for worse. Yeah. Big events can cause big changes, but I'll remind everyone that the beginning of Flutter was very uneventful in the sense that there was this experiment in Chrome that led to this evolution of ideas about how to render super fast. They integrated some compositional UI concepts from the web and then kind of sneakily, stealthily, there was this thing called Flutter that a few people were using and then it blew up. So actually the origin of Flutter is a, an example of what happens in the opposite direction. But what, he, here's something I would say. It, I've, I've said this before. I can't remember if I said this on the previous episodes where we chatted, but the Flutter team has a fundamental problem. There's no amount of hiring they can do that's going to cover the level of responsibility they've taken on. Flutter now deploys to Android, iOS, Web, Mac, Windows, Linux. There's been previous work to Raspberry Pi. The engine is portable to custom embedded systems. That is far too much scope at the level they're currently developing to give to 30, 40, 50, even 100 developers on that team. And so in my opinion, what the Flutter team should, they should have been doing this for years now because this was obvious years ago, but they should migrate primarily to a facilitator role instead of an implementation role. And we can see that in a couple, a couple ways. So first, right now, I mean, have you ever tried to, to contribute to the Flutter framework yourself? No, I haven't. I just, I marked an issue and it was immediately closed for my own <laughs> mistake, kind of. I mean, it was basically like, oh, no, you're, you're wrong. This is not a problem. And then closed. And I was like, oh, that wasn't a nice experience. But I understand that you get bugs all the time and people always saying something that's maybe not a true bug, right? Yeah. I, I recently had an issue closed abruptly on me with no explanation or no, no good explanation. And I said, this is, I'm disappointed in you, Flutter team. And then they came back and gave some snarky, they quoted their own policies to me, like a legal document. And I said, now I'm doubly disappointed. Um, but aside from filing issues, I have heard so many stories from people in the community that I've worked with over the last four years about how difficult it is to contribute to Flutter. Now, 
I want to be careful a little bit here because you can point to something like open source Android and you can say, oh, but how terrible is Android? How difficult is Android? And I would say, sure, Android's even worse. Let's not have a race to the bottom, please, if that's okay. Can we not race to the bottom here? So in absolute terms, a lot of people have tried to contribute to Flutter. They found it immensely frustrating, high friction, almost impossible to get their changes merged in, and then they just stopped trying. There are a lot of really good developers out there who will no longer attempt to contribute to the Flutter framework because their experiences were so consistently bad. So what I was saying a moment ago about the facilitator role, I think that the Flutter framework team should shift into a role of improving the organization of the project, adding educational tools, and then helping to shepherd outside pull requests into the code. Because if you do that, then your effective team size goes from, let's say, 50 people to something more like 5,000 people. Focus on the mechanism that makes it easy for good developers in the community to contribute. Then you've got way more people delivering value. But instead, we have a lot of people on the framework team spending their time implementing version 15 of material design components, right? I mean, that's every year material design comes out with an update every year. Apple comes out with an update, and the framework developers go spend their time doing that. You and I could do that. You and I know enough about Flutter development that we can implement the next material design components. So in fact, uh, you know, and there are some corporate policies around this, but in a vacuum, if I was working strategy for the Flutter team, the next time material design comes out, I'd go to you or I'd go to me, and I'd say, hey, the Flutter team, we're going to pay you like $125, $150 an hour, go implement the latest spec for material design and merge it into the framework. And then it's just completely off the shoulders of the Flutter team. And the Flutter team can focus on um, performance, dev tools, uh, the next iterations of things like shaders, which maybe you and I will talk about, the new impeller engine. They can go focus. Here's the distinction. The Flutter team should build the things that only the Flutter team can build and rely on the community for absolutely everything that the community can possibly build. That gives you the most effective distribution of labor. But right now, the Flutter team spends the majority of their framework time on things that, again, you and I could build if we wanted to. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, I guess what they're trying to do is that is like with the new material design, Material Me, I think it's called, or Android Me, or I forgot what the name is called. I think it's Material Me. Is that the final name? Something, I, mean, the, I think it's Material 3, and then that includes, I don't know. I, it's, I think I, they changed I'm, the name at least one time, and I was like confused about the naming. But Yeah, I've lost the plot, whatever it is. Anyways, I mean, I think what they're trying to do is like they're trying to have it so that this stuff will line up with the release, right? You want to be able to say, update your Flutter SDK, rebuild your app, kick it back out, and it's ready to go. You can't really rely on outside people because you don't really know when they're going to do that. Unless, of course, you have Flutter Bounty Program. Sure you can. Sure you can. So it's like the moment that, so it's not, the idea isn't that you just wait for some random person to do it. The people in the community who are capable of doing this, trust me, the team either knows who those people are or the team could find out in 15 minutes. I mean, let's just for the sake of an easy example, let's just focus on me for a moment. I was on the team for two years. I know the policies. I've merged in lots of PRs. They could shoot me an email directly. I have my email too. They could shoot me an email the moment the next spec comes out and they can say, we, we know you can do this. Here's the rate we're offering. Here's the contract. Here's the NDA. It must be done by this date. Are you in? 
And I'd say, sure, no problem. It won't even be a big deal because 99% of this material stuff is not complicated. It just, someone needs to do the work. I'm happy to do it. And then they don't have to spend their time on it. Now, occasionally there is something new, like the latest Android uh, UI design, whatever, it has a new overscroll effect. Have you seen this? Are you familiar with this? No, I don't think I've seen it. So can you describe it? If you, so if you have a list, historically on Android, when you're scrolling up and down on lists and you get to the end of it, you get this kind of oval blue color that shows you that you've reached the end. Well, Android has now switched to a stretch effect. So once you scroll to the end of a list and you keep scrolling down or up, the list will actually stretch. Now, this effect required new shader support. This is something that you should do in the GPU. You don't want to spend CPU uh, time on this. So Flutter actually had to implement new shader controls to allow them to implement this one new Android effect. So that's one very specific example where I say, no problem, the Flutter team should be the one to do that because they have to go change the engine. But most everything else doesn't require that kind of work. So find the right developer, give them a contract, give them an honest rate, and take that load off of the Flutter team. You make me want to open up my phone and just double, double, double look at this. Uh, let me see. So if I look at like Spotify, well, maybe Spotify is not a good, good use. I did see somebody showing it in the settings, right? And I... I don't see it on my Samsung, maybe because they don't, I don't know, it does stretch a little bit. I don't even notice it. It's funny, these things, like, you don't really notice it unless you pay attention, right? But yeah, I see it now. Basically, everything stretches. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, it's literally, I think, a pixel-based effect. Like, it's not like it moves your list items further apart. It takes the pixels on the screen and actually stretches out the pixels. It's basically like an animated uh, container or something, right? You just change the size of it, or that could be one way to do it, I suppose. Uh, no, there, I'm not aware of any way that you can accomplish that without a texture. Um, again, you could do, you could change layout to paint each list item a little bit further down, but remember that when you have a tree of widgets, you have no idea what your child widgets are, right? So if you're the list and you want to stretch out, there's no way for you to express that desire to your children inside the list. So you, the, the list, you can change your layout of items, but you can't tell your children to stretch themselves internally because you don't know what kind of children you have in the first place. But also in terms of implementation, again, like you said, they're going to match what Android and Material says they're supposed to do. So if Android says the official spec is to take all the pixels in the list and pull the pixels, then technically that's what Flutter needs to implement. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Did, did they... They didn't copy the same style over to iOS, right? They just kind of leave whatever the same style has been for a while, no? Right. The The rules are material design reflects material design, Cupertino reflects Apple. Yeah. So your Cupertino list view or whatever it's called, it's going to do the same thing it's always done. And then when Apple changes that behavior, the Flutter team will change their implementation of Cupertino. It's Cupertino though, but I'm saying if you use material design on iOS, because there is some differences, right? When you Even though you're using material design, material widgets you're going to get slightly different behavior based on platform. Yeah, that's a good question. We'd have to look at the list view the list view class. I don't know if that's considered an adaptive widget that automatically changes itself per platform or or if list view is technically considered a material design component or if list view is considered platform agnostic. We'd have to go poke around and see what the API docs say. Now I kind of want to build an app for iOS and latest version of Flutter and see how it looks. Go for it. Yeah. Have fun. Yeah, and I've actually been thinking a lot about this. Sorry to jump back, but thinking a lot about Super Editor, actually, because I have uh, something I'm, 
I'm overseeing being built in JavaScript by another team and I'm not happy with their progress. And the whole time I back of my head, I'm just like, you know, I wonder if super editor can do what I, what I want this editor to do, which is quite complicated. Um, Come to the dart side. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely looking at it. I'm definitely thinking about it. Like I have the page open up over here and I'm like, you know what, maybe we should just try to do what I want to do. Like, uh, well, what is it at a high level? Uh, it's a, how would you call it? It's for creating like legal documents, right? So you know how you have like um, point one, point two, and sub points, things like that. You want to be able to write into there, select some text and say, okay, this is clause. This is a clause. Go to the next part, highlight that and say, okay, this is another clause. And it can keep up the numbering, uh, stuff like that. And based on your head shaking, yes, it sounds like it could probably do it with a little bit of work. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I think Super Editor at least contains a lot of these tools that you would need. I don't know if you can do that directly with our super editor widget because it sounds like you have some custom rules around what data represents, but my guess is you could compose your own document editor with our tools that can do something like that. Uh, does it need to like to look like a PDF, for example, or do you just need you just need a any kind of document that has these clauses and references between them? Um, in the end, I mean, we're we're storing this as HTML. That was kind of what the 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 basic ideas and then we're looking to put that into like an html to pdf rendering based on that in the end yeah we're going to need pdfs we're going to need an actual document that needs to be digitally signed so and i'm aware that we have the pdf generator right but i would like to keep things kind of flexible and kind of save as html and go that route yeah so i would guess that super editor can probably get you halfway there i mean i think we probably solve the hardest problems you just need to solve the problems that are unique to you. But uh, also, as always, if you know if you want me to go build that for you, if you want me to take Super Editor and build what you need, just let me know. Yeah, I, I think I first need to gen to to demonstrate that Flutter would be something uh, to use. Right, they're they're they've been invested heavily into JavaScript. For them to to throw away at least one to two years of work to go to Flutter is a very big commitment that requires existential or shit ton of have, have they done are you saying are you saying they've done one to two years of work on this no not editor? on this editor alone right there's a whole ecosystem around it like they have a whole spa with a lot of features already inside so it's not just that it's like okay there's a lot okay. of pieces the one thing i wish that there was a nice easy way to do with flutter is to be able to build a piece of the website in flutter and just export like a component, which I think is not yet supported, but that's something that they're looking at. Yeah, I mean, you would you would think that wouldn't be too difficult, but there could be all sorts of things that I'm missing. Yeah, you think so? I mean, maybe you could do like an iframe. Maybe that's an easier way to to kind of embed it. Um, I'm not too sure. Well, and also, I I know for sure you can embed iframes inside of Flutter for web because I've done that for YouTube videos, and I just embedded a, a podcast player in my blog. So you can embed some web stuff. In fact, you, you can add HTML elements inside of your widget tree on Flutter for Web. Okay. But I guess apparent. I guess what what you're saying is that you can't do the reverse. You can't stick a Flutter experience inside a div in your website. Allegedly, yeah, I believe there's no easy way to do that. It's probably possible. I don't see why not. I mean, it's just you know HTML, etc. It's targeting a specific element, so I don't see why you cannot do it. 
um, I mean, at a high level, but I need to look more at it to see how you can do that. Because one of the things I really wanted to do was be able to build a web um, podcast player. Because a lot of podcast players, you know, you, you want them to be your branding, right? So for this podcast, I was thinking it'd be nice to have a podcast player that I could embed on the website and they could play all the episodes. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, so what do you need in terms of, so I just launched a blog and a podcast for the Flutter Bounty Hunters. And for the podcast, I used Captivate. And they have an embeddable player that can either play like the latest episode or a playlist of all your episodes. And I, I don't know if that's thematically uh, exactly what you want, but I've it's been fine for me. I've been okay with it. Oh, that's so your whole infrastructure is on Captivate then, is that right? Uh, the the hosting of the podcast and the playback is there, yeah. Yeah. I... And then I've listed with the various the various indexes. Yeah, this is something. I mean, I have a different host, but it looks interesting. I have to take a look at this one. Um, yeah, I mean, the one thing about the podcast player is like you want it to match your branding, right? But I'm not too sure how flexible this one is. Well, give a look. It uh, might do what you want. But also, I noticed we have one question here from Tony Thomas. So what's up, Tony? He asked, is there a way to read the frame buffer used by Flutter Canvas? without copying the buffer from another isolate or a native thread using FFI to encode animations as movie efficiently. Uh, so you say canvas, but canvas is just a kind of abstract API. Canvas commands turn into layers. Layers go to the engine. The engine then runs the GPU to paint text textures. So my guess is what you mean is, can we get access to the texture uh, and I, I don't think so. I mean, I think the Flutter engine has pretty tightly controlled access to its bitmap memory and its access to the GPU. So this has been a problem for Flutter processing, which is a package that I created. And uh, also bitmap canvas is where I, is where I yanked out the internals from Flutter processing into its own package. What I have to do every time I do a pixel operation, I have to load pixels from the Flutter engine, I change pixel colors, and then I send the new pixels back to the Flutter engine. And that takes forever. It destroys the frame rate. So actually, I just ordered an introductory book on Rust. I thought, you know, maybe I'll just see what all the excitement is about with this Rust language. And I think one of the exercises in there is actually rendering pixels with Rust. What I might do, in my case, is... X, uh, uh, build a little static library in Rust, link that over Dart FFI, and use that to paint individual pixels as much as possible and avoid some of those engine calls. Uh, but until the engine kind of shares control of its bitmap memory, I'm not sure what any of us can do, unfortunately. We're just stuck paying that penalty. It's interesting to take a look at Rust. I mean, Dart, I looked at some comparisons between Dart and Rust for like the... Uh the speed and it seems like even sometimes dart can actually beat rust at when it runs natively well it's i don't ever want to replace dart with rust and i think this is programmer excitement the programmer shiny object syndrome it drives me nuts rust is a systems programming language and so if you're programming an operating system or if you're integrating with an operating system then great go for it i mean like Rust is the alternative to something like C and C++, in my opinion. That's how you look at the trade-off. The idea of using a systems programming language for app development seems ridiculous. 
all the all the safety stuff in Rust, you just don't need that in the application level. You're not doing things that are at risk of corrupting your system memory or something, and you're not doing heavily concurrent tasks. So Dart is a dead simple language and does a great job for app development. Where I think Rust is interesting is, for example, uh, like Superlist needed to do some copy-paste behavior that Flutter simply didn't support. And that requires operating system integration. You have to talk to the operating system to figure it, to access the copy buffer. So they created a package, I believe it's mostly implemented in Rust, that will talk to the operating system and do the copy-paste work that they need that Flutter hasn't done. Their alternative was probably to use C. So again, that's the trade-off, I think. But I would not recommend the idea of bringing Rust in as an application development language. I just don't think that makes sense. I think the only thing, um, so I have a course about how to integrate Rust and Flutter together. Um, the one thing I think that's really interesting about Rust is yes, you get you get uh, all that kind of access and everything. But the other thing too is that you get you know safety, et cetera. And you also get like, in, I think it's a little bit easier time to integrate with FFI. Um, I don't know. I mean, it depends on how good your C is, right? A lot of people are moving from C, C++ over to Rust. They're recreating or they're even having a better way that you can integrate existing libraries like, you know, like SSL, et cetera. So it may be easier to kind of maybe go to that Rust part and then integrate rather than going straight to C. I mean, even you're looking at Rust, right? You could do all the stuff in C. I mean, wouldn't that kind of be a little bit easier? Well, that's part of the reason I'm looking at Rust. I can't, my brain doesn't process C code. So C is this world that I just can't seem to penetrate. And yet there are multiple things I'm working on where either I am talking to C or, I, or I'd like to talk to C and I just can't count on myself to get that done. I've been paying other developers to do that work. I'm hoping that Rust might finally make that code accessible enough to my brain that I can use Dart FFI to talk to Rust instead. So the audience understands Dart FFI, it stands for Foreign Function Interface. It's a way of calling from Dart, not, not to C code, but to a library, to a compiled library, a static library or a dynamic library. And the thing is, yes, C can compile to a static or dynamic library, but Rust can also compile to a static or dynamic library, which is why both of those languages are candidates for Dart FFI. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um... I think working with Rust is a little bit easier, but there is definitely some stuff to to be careful of. And Rust itself also can be complicated, right? I mean, you've you've probably ran into some lifetime issues, no? Some what issues? Lifetime issues, or even with the uh, compiler checks. I haven't even cracked Rust open yet. Like I said, I have an introductory book on its way, so we're gonna see. Maybe it's gonna be as bad as as C is for me. We'll find out. But I'm hoping, I'm fingers crossed, that it's easier to read and write than C code. I think it is, but. You need to first get used to the style of, um, how do you say it? The compiler is going to be so helpful. It's going to feel like it's beating you, basically, like literally hitting you. Uh, but once you start to work with it instead of against it, then you're like, okay, this is nice. Okay. Oh, yeah, this is cool. Oh, yeah, that's true. It starts to catch these kind of bugs that you may make and see where maybe you try to, you know, the double freeze, as as you may probably have heard of, or even forgetting to free memory, et cetera. They, they do all this stuff for you. And it's nice that you don't have to worry about closing files or closing any kind of resource because once it goes to the end of the scope, it's going to close whatever resource that is. So there's a kind of a lot of niceness to it. Yeah, I'd rather have the compiler showing me the problems than my users. So by all means, 
Yeah, uh, you don't want to get those kind of crazy bug reports or those, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I always hear about um, you see some code that's been marked with a comment saying, don't touch this or don't move this. And you look at the code and you're like, this code is horrible. And then you you actually do try to move it. And it's you see why you shouldn't have done anything because it just worked. Well, that's it. Yeah, I mean, it happens. But anytime you do that, it's a failure. That code that first of all, that code should have a test around it. The test shows you exactly why it is the way it is. So an absolute minimum, you need the test. Because then when somebody does come around and poke it, maybe you don't even realize that you broke it. Because a lot of times that's why people say don't touch it. Because when you break it, you, you don't even know you broke it. You can't tell. So at a minimum, you need to have tests that show what are the conditions we're solving for. But then once you have tests, it's okay to touch it because if anybody breaks it, your tests are going to fail. So almost always that kind of code is a failure on behalf of the developer who wrote it to do the responsible thing and find a way to test it. I'm not going to say you're wrong, but I can just say that I'm sure there's going to be some situation where, because I, I just hear about it a lot, right? There's a reason why, I mean, I'm sure everybody knows about testing and testing is like flossing. Everybody knows you should do it, but not everybody does it. Well, almost nobody has a good understanding of why you test and how you should test. So it's like people know that floss exists, but they don't own any, and they have no idea where to buy it. That's, I think, a closer analogy to testing. Okay. Um, going back to Tony, right? Tony has a follow-up question about, is there any plan for sharing the buffer by the Flutter team? I don't think you have that kind of information. But do you hear anybody talking about it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not aware of anything on the public roadmap, and... I mean, th this gets into some of the problems with interfacing with the team um, to understand. So my guess is no, my guess is no, that's the short answer, but let me frame this a little bit and let me show you how we get to a problem like this in a different context. Flutter says that they established their roadmap in part, perhaps in large part, based on what almost like a democratic vote in the community. So here's a problem we find ourselves in. For the first, I don't know, three years of Flutter's existence, it was essentially a mobile-only UI toolkit, Android and iOS. It dabbled with web. It still isn't considered stable on web. And then, I don't know what it was, three or four years into its life, they announced Windows, Mac, and Linux support. So simply by the focus of Flutter over time, what, what kind of developers are the vast majority of Flutter developers? They're Android and iOS. So what do the vast majority of Flutter developers ask for? They ask for more Android and iOS stuff. So what does the, which then leads to more Android and iOS stuff, which then makes it, it, which is an incentive for more people to come to Flutter from Android and iOS. And it's an incentive for more people on Mac, Windows, and Linux to not leave where they are because Flutter isn't prioritizing that stuff. And this is how you get into a cycle that keeps you perpetually incrementing mobile and not digging deep into desktop. Now, I'm not saying that, there, that no one inside the Flutter team um, is prioritizing desktop, but I'm saying in terms of this kind of democratic roadmap, this is how it goes wrong. And so when you ask about access to Flutter's bitmap memory, there might be all sorts of us out here who could gain real value from that. And, and the new ability to do that might then spur the creation of projects that no one's even thought of yet. There's all this unknown potential, but there's no democratic vote for it because everybody on Android and iOS just wants three millisecond better rendering performance. And that's where the votes go. That's what the democratic process gets you in this particular regard. So again, my understanding, I have no awareness of them 
planning to give access or share access to bitmap memory. And I think part of the reason why is because Tony, you and I might be the only two people who have publicly talked about this. And then Simon Lightfoot at least has expressed a desire for this behind the scenes to me, but I don't know that Simon Lightfoot has ever mentioned it publicly either. I'm kind of curious why he's never mentioned it publicly if it's important to him. Well, as I'm not, I don't know how important it is to him. It's just something that nominally he would like to have control over. But, you know, Simon's also one of those, he'd like control over everything. He'd be like, just make the entire engine public and I'll go write C++ code. I'm like, Simon, only you have that skill set, buddy. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to get Simon onto the show. Uh, we were, we're talking about it, but still haven't signed up anything special uh, yet. I mean, I don't know too much about Simon other than uh, he's deeply involved with Flutter. I mean, wh what kind of developer is he actually? You're saying like he's just like a dig into stuff and get things? He, he, knows, he knows everything about everything. I mean, most of his history is Android, but it's deep Android into the operating system level of details. He has a long personal history of hacking on all sorts of interesting projects. I mean, he, he's where I go when I can't find an answer anywhere else. But I'm not the only one who uses him that way, which makes him kind of the busiest Flutter developer on the planet, which might be why you're having difficulty scheduling him on the show. Well, I'm happy that our banter back and forth is not only entertaining for us, but it seems like some people are actually enjoying it. So Kristen Mangler said that he uh, said that they, I don't know if it's he or she, but said they are enjoying this chat. So it's good to hear. Hey, what's up, Christian? Yeah, I, maybe I'm kind of like him on the fact that I just kind of want to dig into everything. That's why I can never, you know, as a master of nothing, jack of all trades kind of person. Well, that's the thing about Simon. I mean, he he must have a very high IQ because he's like a master of everything. So he gets into everything and he knows everything and he can answer any question. He's just constantly consuming information. I don't have that bandwidth in my brain. So I have to pick and choose the things that I focus on. And maybe I maybe I can be as good at a few things as Simon seems to be with everything that he does. Uh, I would love to meet Simon someday, but he's based out of London, right? Yep. Well, and by the way, I mean, if you, if you want to have a ch public chat with him, one place that he's like committed to be every week is hump day Q and a. So every Wednesday he does a live stream with a couple other flutter community members. They have guests on. So if you, you know, see if you can go jump on that show and then that'll probably be more of them interviewing you than the reverse, but you can certainly have a public chat with him. Yeah, maybe I will. So that's, it's not easy to run the, run the podcast. It's always trying to find guests and trying to stay up to date with everything. It takes a, a lot of effort to do. So I'm happy that some audience members uh, realize that and give thanks, right? You know, you know, like when you're, even like as a content creator, right? Let's just be general. You sometimes throw, throw out content and you hear nothing and you're not too sure is this good or bad or is it interesting? And when you get those thank yous or even even somebody saying it sucks, they, okay, somebody watched it and maybe I need to improve or something is better than nothing, right? Yeah, it's like there's some saying in the Bible, something about, you know, you can give me hot water or cold water, but lukewarm water I'll spit out. So if people love it, if obviously you want people to love it, that's the best. But if they're not going to love it, you'd rather that they hate it with a passion and a reason than that they be silent. But I also heard something interesting. Have you heard? Have you heard? I'm sure you've heard of uh, what is it? Tech Lead, I think his name is, on YouTube. Yeah. That, speaking of something to hate with a passion. Oh well, I talked to another guy who says he knows Tech Lead very well. This is what he says to me, right? And he says that basically Tech Lead is doing this on purpose. He's purposely trolling so that he can get more views, which is interesting. Oh, that's. I think that's transparent. But that's why it's so annoying, because what people like that do is they they because. 
there are always downstream consequences from these things. His audience, whether his audience recognizes he's being playing a character or not, it drives a bunch of anger and resentment and division among the audience, which has downstream, con- it has ripple consequences. Uh, if you want to, I mean, if you want to do that with sports, fine. That's what sports are made for. At this point in time, we could say politics is made for that. But what a mistake to turn the tech industry into that. You know, it's like at a certain point, do you want the next Boeing uh, airliner engineered by people who talk to each other the way tech lead talks and the way people in his audience talk? You know, we call ourselves engineers, right? Is this what engineering, we want engineering to be like Fox News versus MSNBC? I really, I prefer that we not do that. No, but I mean, basically he's just an entertainer at this point, right? At least what he says on that channel, you cannot necessarily take his heart, take the heart, I mean. Well, Fox News is entertainment too, but it's entertainment based on making you angry or fearful about the state of your country. So sure, it's entertainment. Now, what are the consequences? And I I don't think they're good. Uh, Yeah, I think in the long run, it's not that good, but I haven't heard of anything crazy happening. I mean, there's nobody doing some violent act based on tech leads so far that I'm aware of. How many people lost how much money on his BS crypto nonsense that he peddled across a dozen videos. Oh, did he peddle crypto? I, I actually, I'm not too aware of him doing that. I don't catch all his videos. He, yeah, he's been on every side of it. So he's been pro crypto. Then he's been anti crypto. Then he launched his own crypto. Then he, then he sold his own crypto. He got money off of it. The people who bought it, it went to zero. Yeah, he's been on every side of crypto. Um, and that's just one example. I mean, you, you can find more things that he's shilling for. So again, yes, it's entertainment, but there are certain types of entertainment that come with consequences. Okay, that's yeah, I did hear a lot of people peddling FTX and then in the end they looked like a fool because of what happened, but that's a whole nother story. Like uh my wife always watches like Hey It's Me Kevin or something. I think he was a huge proponent. <laughs> she was watching him, now she stopped watching him a couple of months ago. So maybe she she she's uh, out of the uh, what do you call that? The trance of Kevin. I don't know. She used to always watch him all the time. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's probably a good, a good trance or cult. It's probably a good word for it. You get sucked into this feeling of belonging with a lot of these people and you like, you, you know, you feel like you're a member of this cohesive audience. Um, but there, a lot of these people, they don't know. I mean, they obviously don't know you like right now, whoever's in the audience, you're, you and I are both speaking to a camera. We don't know who they are really. And so whether it's meet Kevin or whether it's the tech lead, they don't know the millions of people watching them. They have no relationship with you, but they're there doing things that make them money based on what they convince you to do. And at a minimum, you got to be super careful anything you do in response to those kinds of videos. And like you said, you can see it with the FTX stuff. Uh, even Graham Stephan, who sure seems like a stand-up guy, like meet Kevin. He looks, he's always seemed like a used car salesman. Oh, really? Me. But Graham <laughs> he seems Stephan, like a nice guy when I watch yeah, him, I mean, but might, you know, I'd, well, a used car salesman is a nice guy too. That's what it takes to get you to buy the car. But the point is he's going to overcharge you and give you a car that breaks down once you roll it off the lot. But Graham Stephan has largely seemed like a stand-up guy from his public persona. But even he got a bunch of people to lose money on FTX, right? Yeah, that's where I think the issue comes in where it's like, so I'm starting to get approached by people for sponsorship and I'm starting to think, so actually, I take time to actually play with it and see what this thing is and see if it's actually okay or not, because I don't want to look like Kevin. I don't want to look like whoever and, and, and say this is good. And then 
it's not right but you know nobody from crypto has come to me yet i don't know if it's ever going to happen i mean what i hear they just go everywhere right but i would like to i mean sure everybody likes money right but at the same time you have to think about like you said your reputation is it really worth that extra money because in the end you're going to lose a lot more if you bet on the wrong thing or if you push the wrong thing right yeah don't don't take the short term gain at the cost of the uh, with the long term expense yeah that, definitely right that's I did get uh, a couple of people asking me, and no, I'm sorry, the same company asked me multiple times to promote like men, menscaping products. I don't know. I was, <laughs> I was curious because it's like, well, it could kind of benefit the audience, but I don't know if it's really makes sense or not. It's a good question. It's an, I mean, I've on the political shows, I've seen those various razors many times, but <clears throat> it's an odd, it's odd for them to come to the flutter vertical to sell, uh, to sell razors for between well, the legs. I think most of our audience, I think it's like at least 90% is, is, uh, identifies as men. So there's, Oh, sure. We've got, we've got men. It's just like, it's still, it's a rather narrow audience here. Right. I mean, the num the num like compared to a political show again, like politics and, and social stuff draws millions of views. You're doing very well, but I, I don't know that you're doing, I don't know that you have the audience that like the, the Ben Shapiro show has. Right. So that those advertisers are on shows like that. I'm just, amazed that they're they're getting as granular as a, a flutter show well that's the benefit too is most people coming to me are all flutter related or want to get into the flutter space so therefore they see that okay this obviously is my target right yep has anybody approached you yet to to put some stuff onto your channel um there was one company that wanted me to use their payment system to build like an example app on video i think uh and I, I kind of let that conversation disappear, not really intentionally. I just forgot about it. But my my original question to them was, you know, I'm open to it, but what makes you different from Revenue Cat? And not that they need a great answer to that, but I think it was called Revenue Cat. Is that right? Does that name ring a bell with you, Revenue Cat? Isn't that the one that's done by the guy who does HL Widgets podcast? Isn't that the one you're talking about? I don't know. Um well, let's pretend for a moment that that's the right name, Revenue Cat. If that is the right name, they have solutions for different languages, including Flutter, and they're kind of the tool out there if you don't want to implement your own payments and subscription using the Apple and Android APIs. And so if I'm going to invest time in, in recommending something else, I'd personally like to understand why people wouldn't choose the large existing established option over this new one. And their response to me didn't didn't really answer that question for me, which made me a little bit skeptical. And I just never got around to digging deeper. Okay, yeah, I I just seen what they do. It, it, I'm talking to somebody who does in a similar space. It could be the same person. I'm not too sure. Yeah, and in this case, like I don't have any negative opinion of the people who asked me. I just again, I just forgot about the conversation. But my point there was, my audience is going to probably ask the same question that I asked, right? Which is, I already know about Revenue Cat. I know what they do why why would i switch or use a different solution and so i would need to be able to answer that myself to my own audience no i agree right and and um i think it's good like even say okay well we do better at this than revenue cat okay well then maybe that would be what you'd want to push right why should they choose this one etc which is what we're trying to do yeah any yeah. answer it, it could it could be it could be we're less expensive it could be we have an easier api it could be we have more i don't care what the answer is just let me know your philosophy over here why do you think people are going to are going to pay for your product over the other one yeah um there is a lot of different solutions out there even you know this one that we're using right now i mean there's 
plenty of others who do a similar thing. Yeah, but uh, speaking of that, um, I don't know if any, anybody actually knows this, but we actually met already, right? In person. Yes. I don't know if everybody knew that. I just did the one tweet. I wanted to do more, but I just didn't have a moment to kind of compile the images and video I took. Yeah. So what, what month was that? Was that July? Uh, wow, that's a good question. I think it is July. I don't remember when the heck I was back. I think I came... I don't remember when the heck it was. Could have been. Anyways, probably sometime during the summer. But you came to the U.S. He had a few stops. You brought your wife with you. And we had... Uh, we went to downtown Mountain View, had some dinner, walked around, saw some really expensive little houses. And uh, and also, we took a little tour around the Google HQ campus. Yeah. So I really appreciate giving us... So we had this awesome uh, tour by you. Uh, I thought that was great that we could understand. We saw where Flutter used to be, I think, at the time you said they moved out of there. You saw where they used to be, and then right next door, you saw where they currently oh, are. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when I was... The, across, across the two years that I was there, we occupied three different buildings. And the first building and the third building... We're actually pretty much right next door to each other. The one in between that we were stuck in for a few months, I think is now the official building for all of Android, if I remember correctly. Um, but that's okay, because I actually, my personal opinion was that the first and third buildings were both better than the one in between. So I was happy to move out of the second one. How does that process go where they just kind of say, hey, you're moving? You just... Or you just come to office and you're like, where's my stuff? And then there's a sign saying you're in this. I'm, I'm sure they send us an email and, they're, and think the email says something like, make sure that either everything's off your, de everything's off your desk. So either take it with you or uh, put it, they, they assign you a little cabinet with wheels on it that rolls around. And so you can put your stuff in there and you have the key to it. You can lock it up and they will move that little uh, drawer system to your new desk. They'll also move the stuff that's attached to your desk. Like if you have monitors up on arms, They'll take those down and then reassemble them for you at your new location. They have a whole internal team dedicated to that. I can imagine they probably stay quite busy because I think people probably move quite a bit because Google's a huge company, right? Yeah. I don't remember what the average was, but there was some statement like on average, people at Google move their desk every X months or a year or something like that. So people are always moving. You know, I heard that uh, military always moves for a specific reason. Like they don't want you to get too attached to people and also like the area that you're at for what for like maybe so it's easy to deploy you in case they want to like that's why they purposely keep moving people around even though it costs tons of money it's just easier to keep moving people around because the emotional attachment of that place will be a problem later when they actually do need to move you for a good reason could be i don't think that's the reason that google moves people around but i can certainly see that for the military that, that could just be pushing you around just to kind of, you know, don't, don't let this guy become too comfortable or else, you know, because when you're too comfortable, right, you tend to let things, you let bugs come in, et cetera, right? You did hear that. I heard this interesting, uh, I don't know what you call that, take on where bugs come from, that basically the worst guy, uh, the bugs usually come from the second worst person on the team because everybody knows who's the worst person. So they're all watching his code and they miss the guy who's just slightly better than him who's going to put code in as they're going to be a little bit more buggy and nobody's really watching him. That's why it happens. I don't know if this is something that you can validate or not. Uh, in my experience, bugs come from everybody on the team and I've witnessed in, on certain teams m as many bugs coming from the so-called best or smartest person on the team as, uh, as, as the newest person on the team. Uh, bugs primarily come from people who aren't writing tests. They aren't planning what they're developing the moment they get something working one time, they commit it. This is where bug, bugs come from a lack of thorough development practices. 
which unfortunately is all too common in our industry because we seem to have no checks and balances on developer work. Like we have code review, but if you're going to have one person with bad incentives reviewing another person with bad incentives, why would you expect that to give you better results? So there's no greater system at play to keep developers honest. And then most developers aren't honest. They do bad stuff. And that becomes apparent with velocity going down and bugs going up. Now, I kind of want to go back to the testing part, right? So for me, I try to do, I use, I usually write the test first and let the test kind of drive my APIs and my thought process. How do you do your testing? Because a lot of people like to test at the end, which I feel is difficult because you, 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 yeah, you're, you're testing what you already know is correct rather than letting the test prove that what you wrote is correct, if that makes sense. Well, you can't prove correctness. That's a, that's a misunderstanding of tests. Only a human can decide what constitutes correct. So there are a few different topics here. First, what, what you're initially describing is like the distinction between test-driven development versus other testing approaches. And the thing there about test-driven development is that despite the name, it's not a testing strategy. It's a software design strategy. It's using tests to design your software. And that's definitely a legitimate way to program if, if you choose to. If that's how you get the, the best answer, then go for it. There are many other software design methodologies. For example, domain-driven design. Now, some people might say domain-driven design does not preclude test-driven development. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But the point is, at least at a high level, when you break down your problem in domain-driven design, it is not with tests. In fact, you're probably sitting with business analysts and people that are designing your product, and you're using non-technical concepts to break down what you eventually write in your code. So I have no problem with test-driven development, but those who say that's like the, the only way you're allowed to write tests, that just isn't the case. Um, the second part you said was that let's put it, let's put aside the idea of proof proofs. It, that's just a confusing topic. Tests don't prove things, but tests can, they can lock down your code. So once you, Alan, as a human have said, this code does what I want it to do. A test prevents that code from ever doing anything else without you knowing, because if it does, your test is going to fail and you're going to get flagged. From that perspective, if you write tests after the fact, the important thing is that you test your requirements. You constrain your requirements, not your implementation. For example, in Super Editor, a lot of, not all of our tests, but a lot of our tests simulate user gestures. So or like when, when Angelo first came into the code base and he was trying to figure out how to test all this stuff, if he wanted to test the user selection, he would actually directly set the, the placement of the carrot using the code. He would like go into the selection tool that we have and he'd say, say the carrot, put the carrot here. And I said, Angelo, technically that does what you want, but here's the problem. Everything related to the actual tap, when the user taps the screen, when we, when we get that offset, when we turn the offset into a document position, when we then set the selection on the document, we've missed all of that because you, what you bypassed all of the user part and you went straight to our implementation of selection. So instead, what our test does, if we want to actually place the carrot, we do it from the user perspective. We tap somewhere in the document to place the carrot, and then we proceed with our test. 
That way we're test we are cons- we're saying that this document can always be tapped and when it is it always places a carrot regardless of how we implement it that needs to be true so our implementation can change whenever we want but the need to be able to tap to place a carrot will always work as long as our test passes okay it, that makes sense so when it's, i feel like when you usually write your code you probably write your code first and then write a couple of test cases to kind of prove that everything or that, sorry, I'm going to use the word prove because we talked about that to confirm that it does what you think it should do. Is that how you usually work? I've, I've done it both ways. Um, it, I think test driven development in, in the mobile world where you're bringing, or really in the app world where you're bringing so many different technologies together, it's really tough to do it effectively. Most of the time it slows me down, but if I, for example, if I'm writing unit tests, and let me, here's a definition problem. Um, to me, unit test means I'm testing one method on an object. For some reason, developers have gotten in this habit of referring to literally anything as a unit test, or they say a unit test is a small test. And I say, okay, let me go ask all the people on your team what constitutes small, and let me show you how many different answers I can get. So it's the word doesn't help if we don't have a definition. So I think Bob Martin. Uh, puts forward the definition of a test on testing a one method on an object. I like that definition. It's easy to define. The nice thing about unit tests defined that way is that you can test every possible precondition and input argument to a method, and you can verify every possible return value and post condition. So you can cover every, now, now, if you did that for all of your code, you would have 10 million tests. It would, it's, the management at that point is a problem. But there are places where there are certain methods that are so critical. It's really nice to test every single combination. And when I write those tests, I will often write, I'll write a dozen of those tests at once, and then I'll go make those tests work. Those tests allow me to get my idea down. Like, okay, I think it should do this, 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 this. And then I go make it work. That's useful for me at the very small scope level. When it comes to the broader scope of something as complex as a text editor with user interactions, for me, it, it's actually more difficult to get the job done writing the tests first. And I think the, um, the primary argument against writing your tests last is that one, you might forget to do it, or two, you might put less effort into it. Well, if I'm responsible, I'm going to do it. And if I'm responsible, I'm going to put effort into it. And if I discover something bad, when I'm writing those tests, I really should go back and change the implementation. So it requires more self-control to write tests after the fact. But then again, some of us can exercise the self-control. Some can't. Some are always in such a hurry that they're just going to get themselves into trouble. But for the most part, I can bring myself to change my implementation even at the end when I'm writing the test if I discover that I did something dumb in the implementation. That makes sense. I think the the thing I usually see at least beginner developers uh, doing. Um, so for that same project I was talking about earlier with the document, um, we obviously have a backend, and um, for that one we're doing it, uh, you know, ourselves. But the issue that we're that I see at least for the younger developers is that um, they're literally working on the code first and writing 
tests later. I try to ask them to write tests just so we can confirm that nothing gets broken because we're constantly adding new requirements, features, etc. But the issue is that when they're adding these things, they're writing the code and then doing the setup by hand with mouse, keyboard, you know, through the UI, running it, running it, uh, you know, running that code, you know, maybe creating something and then expecting something to come out. And it doesn't work. So then they go back, they make the change, and then they repeat. And for something like this, we can easily just set up a test case. And that should save you at least the, the setup time, the running time of doing everything manually. That's the big issue I have that I think TDD can help to solve. But then again, those kind of tests are really easy to do. And basically, you may even call that a unit test because it's maybe 10 lines of code that you just keep running over and over again. Again, for me, if, if you're verifying one method, a specific method, then it's a unit test. If it's a small test, that, that means nothing to me. I've, I've categorized tests differently than that. But it, you've identified two things, two reasons why you do what you do. You just said, one, these are beginners. So recognize that you're using uh, test-driven development as an education tool. And two, you're using test-driven development to obtain a faster development cycle time. Those are both reasonable. I mean, if those are things you want and you get them with test-driven development, then by all means, go for it. Uh, I find that Hot Reload typically gives me the development cycle that I need in terms of Flutter development, which so for me, that isn't usually an issue. And then I don't usually need to educate myself, so I don't have the education burden. But the nice thing about what you said is you identified a problem and then you proposed a solution. How many times have we seen developers just tell us about their solution and we realize, we ask like, okay, well, why do you do that? It's like, oh yeah, we're totally test-driven development. And we say, oh, why do you do that? And their answer is like, because it's good. <laughs> well, but why is it good? What, what problem are you solving? And you realize they never thought about it. They never thought about what problem they're solving, but you did. You just mentioned two explicit problems and you mentioned what your choice was to solve it. And that is called engineering. I sorry to kind of spin off a side with this topic. We can go for a while, but Tony asks a very good question, and I hear this a lot. I'm, I don't want to say my opinion yet. I want to hear yours. I think you have a very strong opinion. Um, so Tony says, in my honest opinion, if you're a startup with limited resources and time, writing tests is no is not is no practical. Probably it's not practical, especially if you are doing R and D kind of work where the code changes so fast. What is your thoughts about that? Those are two very different statements, Tony. So the statement of resource-constrained startup is one problem. Prototype code is a different problem. You can have prototype code in tiny companies, and you can have it in big companies. And you can have cash-strapped, time-strapped companies, and you can have big enterprise companies. In prototype code, and I, here's the thing about prototypes, you don't ever ship it. If you're trying to learn something, if you're doing a spike, if you're trying to figure out how something works so that you know how you're supposed to implement it, you never ship that code. You do the work, you figure it out, and then you go create the real solution that you're going to ship. For the prototype code, I agree with you, often tests just get in the way. And this goes back, Alan, to what I told you a minute ago, which is that tests don't prove anything. They just lock down your code. They lock down the behavior that you've installed. So Tony, you say, well, we're prototyping. We are fundamentally shifting behavior by the hour because we're learning as we go. Well, you're right. You don't want to lock that down because then you're just going to have to unlock it to make the next change. So go do your prototyping, your hacking, your spikes, learn everything you need to learn. Then when you're getting ready to create something that's going to ship to users and customers, 
and it's going to be long lived and you're going to have to evolve it. If you don't write tests, that's not going to make you move faster. Very soon, that's going to make you move slower. And then it's going to make you move not at all. The fastest way to spend all your startup money is to write code that has no way to confirm it's still working and then spend 10x the amount of time debugging it, fixing, refixing, fixing new bugs you created while fixing your old bugs. And that's a pattern I've lived through more times than I can count. So I would not use that strategy for a startup. If you want, there's a saying, if you want to go fast, go well. Okay, if you want to go fast, go well. And the way that you go well is by making sure you have tools in place to ensure that what you've built continues doing what you intended for it to do and nothing else. So yes, I would definitely be writing tests in a startup. You just need to write the, the most effective tests for what you're shipping. I, I have to share a lot of agreements with what you just said. It's crazy, that kind of thought process where, sorry, maybe that's a little bit too strong and too, I'm, I'm, I'm too strong in my words sometimes like this one. Go be strong. <laughs> have strong opinions. Have some backbone. Be like tech uh, yeah, lead. Be like tech lead. Um, I've heard this before many times. The the if I'm going to be strong, the excuse that writing tests is just going to harm the process, waste resources, etc., is probably one of the worst. Because when you're a startup, you have no credibility. Number one, and we've all heard the expression: "It takes a while to build up, you know, credit or whatever you call it, and it just takes a short while to break that." that connection, that trust. So can you imagine you've been pushing this customer to try out your system? You're working your ass off on it for several years. You give it to them. You give them all these promises and they can't even log in to the site or they can't even sign up. Right. Or what if, what if you lose, what if you, what if their credit card information gets leaked? That's even worse. Yeah. That's even worse. Right. Once you have that problem, then you're, you're just forget about it. You might as well just try another job or maybe change to something else. And also the fact that you say it goes slower, I've heard and I've seen myself that adding tests, specifically TDD, because I have a lot more people around me who do TDD, you know, I do TDD, that writing tests actually makes the development process faster because they can confirm the code rather than doing the cycle, which I just told you, which is what most people do is that they try it, see it doesn't work, they reset everything up, try it again, doesn't work, and repeat until they get it done, until it breaks again in the future, which they don't know when it's going to break because they have no tests that are running in the CI. This is the kind of issues you're going to run into. And like I said, the company I'm helping out right now, the one I've been talking about, they I was told specifically, oh, we don't have time to write tests was number one. And number two, business says we, we, we should not spend time. We should not waste time on writing tests. And I specifically asked the business, I said, listen, is this true? And they said, no, well, why would we ever say that? And I haven't seen anything to of the sort where, where they've given any kind of... Um, Mm, they gave me any kind of feeling saying that they would talk like that. I think it's just that they feel that the business would say you're wasting time writing tests rather than, you know, it being actually something that somebody specifically said, I could be wrong, but that's my feeling after being in many different companies, helping people out and seeing it. Right. And I just told them directly, Hey, if I'm going to help out, we got to put tests in because I don't want to deal with this kind of stuff. And we've gone in the six to eight months I've been helping them out. We've gone farther than the one and a half years that they've spent on it before that is just fact-based why it, why it is like that maybe it's because i'm a superstar i don't know but i think that <laughs> you're the I best that ever that's one way to look at it that could be one big factor but i think another factor is just that we have test cases to cover issues that they don't come back up in the future 
Does that mean we catch everything? Because you write have 100% test coverage doesn't mean that you're going to catch every single problem. I've had situations where we had 100% test coverage. We put in production and it craps out because we forgot a configuration. We forgot to check a certain scenario or we only check certain scenarios. Somebody gave us an emoji instead of giving us a ASCII character and you know, it shit happens, right? But at least we feel better about it, right? If you really want to rustle some feathers, we can talk about test coverage. <laughs> I, I'm guessing you can... If, if, if you think people have strong opinions about whether or not to write tests, look at how strong the opinions are about code coverage. I mean, look at all the... Have, have you seen this trend of Flutter repos posting little badges with their like 100% code coverage calculator or whatever? Those are common to see, yeah. I also have those up too. We have a 90% code coverage we have to fulfill, but I think that's fine. We don't... Oh, we don't... We don't... <laughs> Hey, you know, it's it's better than because if you don't cover as much as possible, then you're going to have issues. But I understand you're saying code coverage is not guarantee you're going to have a bug-free system, right? I understand that and I agree about that part. Well, it doesn't even kind of guarantee. Okay, let, let me tell you a little a little story. <clears throat> when I was working at Nest, we had just massive spaghetti code. It was it was remarkably bad code. The developers were remarkably smart and well-educated and good, and yet, for whatever set of reasons over the years, they just produced this monstrosity where, in, in general, any part of the code depended on everything else. There was just no encapsulation boundaries, no way to break it down, very poor testing. Now, I spent a long time trying to improve practices on my feature team, and I spent a lot of time learning how to do a better job of that. But along comes management one day. Like it got so bad that management was like, we're going to have to step in. By the way, this is a lesson to developers. The moment management feels like they need to dictate coding policies to you, you done fucked up. <laughs> that, like, that's a problem. Um, so management came along and they're like, okay, we now want 60 or 70% code coverage. Pick a we pick a number out of a hat. You guys now have to test this percentage of your code. And I went, I grabbed my manager and the director of the department and I said, listen, obviously I understand the problems. I'm the one over here who's been trying to solve these problems for the last year. I get it. Your intention is good. This is a bad policy because I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. So I told my manager and the director, I said, what you've just done is you've incentivized developers to write the easiest, low value, do nothing tests that report the number you've demanded which we now have to maintain all of those no-value tests. We have to spend the time running them on every pull request, and they aren't going to make anything better or safer. And my manager and the director said, thank you for your cogent remarks. Now please go back to your desk. And so within a week, I started seeing pull requests landing, where literally the, the pull requests were nothing but tests that did two things in every test object dot something equals something expect object dot something equals something these were they were testing every setter method they could find that when you set something and then you grab it back out it is what you set it to be dozens and then hundreds of these tests and you know who it was contributing these tests it was the tech lead for the whole app the smartest guy in the room with the most authority was contributing tests that validated setter methods. So like, it took a week for my prediction to come true here. 
And this is why, in a nutshell, and this is just one anecdote, but that extrapolate that out. And this is why these policies around hit this number are just silly. The intention is good, but there's no clear connection between the policy and the result. If you have developers who are responsible enough to do the right work, they would already have been doing it. So when so you have irresponsible developers who aren't testing the right stuff, you give them a number, okay, they're going to hit that number, and they're going to hit it in the worst way possible. But then some people might say, well, but 100% is a special number because you have to run every line of code. And I would say, yes but you haven't included any of the lines of code that run before that line or after that line. So if someone calls every single setter on every object in your app, you have, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is a, not technically correct, but in general, you have 100% code coverage and yet you haven't tested anything because your code is a permutation. You, have a, you, you don't just have a thousand lines of code. You have a thousand lines of code running in different orders. So first it's one, two, three, four, then it's two, one, three, four, then it's two, three, one, four. Literally every permutation of CPU instruction is something your app might do. That, if you actually tested that, that's not 100%, that's like 10 million percent code coverage, quite literally. Quite literally, the number would be like 10 million percent. So 100% isn't the special number that management thinks it is. But they dictate that because they think it means we've tested everything. No, you haven't. You probably haven't tested half of everything. I have an interesting, uh, I know exactly what you mean. This is the problem. Uh, I don't know if you can say this is the problem, but this is the resourcefulness of developers is that they pay attention to what management says and they say, ah, okay, I could do that. Which means that they have their own interpretation of it, right? Well, they, they look at it as compliance. Like, so the reason management got involved is because you have a quality problem. Like your users are suffering and your business is suffering. So management tries to get involved and give a very specific solution. But if like again, to get in that position in the first place, it means developers initially chose not to write great tests, right? Like that has to be the precondition. If that's the precondition, then those developers don't really believe in testing as a principle. So when you tell them to hit a percentage, what they see is compliance. Not that we're trying to make things better. I just need to comply with this mandate from management. And that almost always is going to give you bad results because what you, you don't want compliance. What you want is an app that stops breaking, right? So it, the, the problem is almost always deeper. Um, and yet management tries to solve it by giving you a number. Now, what I wanted to say about this topic is when I worked in the bank, uh, my manager was kind of up there with like these other guys trying to to talk and give like reason about stuff, right? So he would mostly kind of give developer perspective in these management meetings. Um, the way this bank worked is that they had four buckets of of where their money goes. You got supplies or equipment, salaries, IT supplies, equipment, IT salaries. And they look at IT salaries versus normal office worker salaries, and they're way higher. That's why they have a separate bucket. And so, you know, the guy at the top doesn't really understand what it's like to be in IT, et cetera, but he just sees, why is this bucket so much higher for maybe less people than compared to, you know, my typical pencil pushers, we call them, right? And so they want to be able to put a metric on it to figure out, is am I getting my money's worth? I mean, this is a bank, right? They're all about metrics and everything else. Are you about to give me lines of code? Uh, yes. 
that's part of it is, is changes of lines of code in Git was what their metric was. And the most, uh, what's it called? And so this came, they bought this vendor system, which all it does is analyze your Git repos, which what you're going to get out of that is just maybe characters and lines of code. And so the most, uh, they tried on a couple of teams and the most productive person, according to the system, was the guy, all he did was manage configuration files. Okay, change this one, change this one, commit, push. He was the most productive person. But this does not take into account that basically everybody in the team did pair programming on one person's machine. And so you don't usually have two names on a git commit. For the most part, you have the single person who owns that machine. All the means we have to spend with business to figure out what we need to do. But apparently, according to what they were uh, told was that, okay, we run these analysis on your git repos and we're going to tell you who is the best person in the company based on this in the IT sector. Let, let alone to say everybody just started, you know, committing white space all the time just to make themselves look better. That, like you said, that just went out the door as soon as people started figuring out how we can scam the system. Rather than saying, you know, what really was the big difference. Yeah, and sometimes that's the developer's fault and sometimes it's management's fault. So I think in my example of test coverage, it's the developer's fault. They, they failed their responsibility and management tried to make up for it. In your example, that's management taking opinions, creating opinions on stuff they have no business to have opinions about. Uh, it, obviously, anyone who understands the nature of the, of the programming job would never recommend doing that. So clearly that person didn't understand the nature of the job. And so management created a problem that didn't need to exist in that case. But I would also, <clears throat> I'd tell that, that CEO or whoever it was, I said, if you think that there's something weird about your IT budget being so much bigger for payroll, how about we create a bucket for your executive staff? Let's, let's put all the VPs and the CEO into a bucket and see how that number compares to the payroll on tech staff. Something tells me the uh, per person budget for the executive staff is going to be a little bit higher. So it's almost like different jobs have different value and different supply and demand. And you'd think someone working at a financial institution would understand that, but it sounds like not. Well, I think it's, it's, here's the thing though. It depends on how your company runs, right? IT is known as a cost, right? There's either people who make money and there's people who cost money. We're a supportive role, but we basically looked at it as cost. The traders and the salesmen who are selling, you know, uh, financial products and buying and selling securities, they're in the, what do they call the other one? I forgot, profit or whatever. They make the money according to the way they look at the company. So that's the way it looks at it, right? So maybe these high up guys, okay, they're actually making money for us by making deals, et cetera, but we're known as the cost. So that's why they need to take a look at us because, you know, that, that's probably how they look at it. I don't really know. I wasn't in the meetings, but I can imagine that would be one way for them to see it. Yeah. I'm just, even if you're looking at costs, I'm just saying if, if you're a CEO and you're looking at the payroll for programmers, and then you're looking at the payroll for like people working the desk in your bank and you don't understand why those numbers are, are significantly different, you probably shouldn't be a CEO. That's a really, I mean, that you're missing some very fundamental concepts of labor skills and supply and demand. Have you ever heard that the, the CEO of Motorola used to get his emails printed to him? No, but that, that sounds eccentric enough for a, <laughs> for a CEO. Well, you look at Motorola now and you think about the past and you can understand why this is uh, definitely possible. This is what I heard quite a few times. Going back to Tony, Tony has another question, which kind of piggybacks on what you were talking about earlier. How many algorithms are there to unit test in a typical app? Do we need to test the collection classes? 
I don't think I've ever written or tested a single algorithm in my life in any language for any purpose. So I, maybe algorithm there means something different. Uh, it, if collections, you mean the collections ship with Dart, the general answer is you don't, you don't write tests for any code that you don't control. Now, your code might use code that you don't control, but you're testing what your code does. You, like, so you wouldn't write a unit test to make sure that calling insert on a list actually inserts an item in a list. It's not your code. It's not in your control. By using that package, you've already assumed that someone else has tested it and that it does what it says it does. Yeah, I think that's a pretty, pretty solid answer. It makes sense. He replied yes. So maybe he agrees. On the yeah. same page. I think the the main thing, and I still think that's a very good um, way to kind of put all this testing talk at ease is, I think Kent Beck said this, he gets paid for working code, not for writing tests. So he basically writes enough tests that he feels comfortable that his code is in a good state and then he moves on. I think that's probably a, a very good way to measure how much testing you should do, right? Once you feel comfortable that your code is working fine, then you can go on to the next part and no need to keep working about and thinking about testing and all that kind of stuff. That answer definitely makes sense. And what is hidden in that answer goes back to the responsibility discussion from earlier. Kent Beck knows what he's doing and he knows why he's doing it. And he's done it for his entire career. You can trust that Kent Beck is going to be comfortable when management would be comfortable. The problem, which you've expressed earlier, is you get some some juniors, you get some new people. Who knows what their comfort level is? Maybe they're comfortable writing no tests at all. So what you've done there is comfort becomes a proxy. And that might be the best answer, but you have to make sure that the person is comfortable when they should be comfortable. Because if they're comfortable without writing any tests, then you're back, you have a problem again. So you have to really understand the person you're dealing with. You can't just turn it into this abstract process thing like like management did with code coverage numbers. It's a personal issue. Uh, Tony also wrote, Copilot can write tests, by the way. I'm not sure how good Copilot's testing is, though. I haven't tried Copilot. My inclination is, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't like and I don't trust most code I see from most other developers in general. I'm not sure I want an AI learning from those developers and then telling me to do the same thing. Yeah, that's a good point because I know most developers. We've all seen code from other people. Even we don't trust our own code, right? You and I don't feel comfortable writing C for a specific reason. We don't trust ourselves. The fact that we can not trust other people is another thing. And then the fact that we cannot trust computers that we wrote to write for us sounds even worse, right? It's kind of like the game of telephone. There's going to be some communication lost in between. Yeah, I mean, and generally, not that I'm an AI person, but I think generally there's a notion in machine learning, which is, your what you produce with machine learning can only ever be as good as the data you put into it. So if, if so, if Copilot is learning from a bunch of crappy developers, and obviously there are some great ones in there, but if it's learning from millions of developers, let's be honest: if you take millions of developers, what portion of them are actually effective developers? The answer is probably I don't know five percent of that. In fact, uh, Bob Martin often mentions a, a statistic: the but what is it? At any given time, 50% of all programmers have been programming for less than five years. And that's for two reasons. The number of people who stop programming and the number of new people who come in. But at any given moment, one out of every two programmers in the world has been doing it for less than five years. So that stat, in my mind, is pretty damning towards something like Copilot. 
unless someone unless they have some algorithm to weed out the uh the new and bad programmers sorry you just reminded me something um about how ai can learn from the people around it the funny thing is too uh i don't know if you ever heard about this one but tencent made a i had to go look it up on the screen over here uh but i remember this one so tencent made a ai chat bot and like you said about the the inputs coming in people actually made that chat bot love america by saying kept telling it about american dream and all these good stuff about us <laughs> usa USA. You, know what, you know what was the result of all this what's that tencent sh shut down that bot they tried they tried to censor the bot after that yeah for, oh, i'm sure interesting among all the other things that are being censored yeah right? yeah well that's the funny thing is all, all this that happened hey, wouldn't it be funny if uh well can we make jokes about a certain party of a certain large country near you i think as long as i say nothing it should be fine because it's not me saying it. I was going to say, it'd be funny if a chat bot learned from the CCP, and as a result, the chat bot never said anything. Kind of like what half of the people on this show are doing right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's interesting stories about that one, right? Uh, I think if you say nothing, that means you kind of agree according to some rules. But at the same time, uh, you know, there's a recent story that happened where uh, obviously we don't really follow rugby in U.S., but Hong Kong went to play rugby in South Korea. They played a protest song instead of the national anthem of China. And they did it on accident, right? Because you ask an intern, can you please play the, pro the, the song of Hong Kong? Well, they played the protest song. <laughs> and the a lot of political people came out and said, hey, you should you know what you should do as the team you should just quit quit immediately and just walk away instead of staying by and you know playing right so i don't know what to say the the whole thing is getting um i could say interesting <laughs> so uh, i don't know what the right thing to do is but yeah that that could be some way to do it say nothing and what's that saying may you live in interesting times yeah now it's definitely getting more and more interesting i'm not sure if if life is getting more interesting or life is getting worse well, those those two things are not at all exclusive. In fact, they're often the same. Yeah, I, but also the other thing too is uh, I think they say that like when when life is tough, that's when innovation comes, right? So maybe we should expect some new things coming out. Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, yeah. So let's see what comes out of FTX. I'm guessing some regulations. I don't know. I'm curious about that part because that's probably the biggest news happening so far recently. Yep. Cool. Um, yeah, I I don't think I have anything else to say. We've been on for about an hour and a half. Is there anything that you wanted to say before we? Start to close out. Well, we're going into 2023. Why don't you tell me what you'd like to see from Flutter in 2023? What do you wish they would do? Okay. Well, obviously, one of them is to be able to create web components or even components for other things, right? If we have a way that we can embed stuff into other apps, that would be cool. Are you talking specifically web, Flutter in web, or are you talking about other kinds of combinations? I think web is the first one, but then I started thinking about it. It'd be kind of cool that you can, well, obviously you can combine stuff with native platforms, but I don't know if you can do it for all, right? I know mobile, yes. I've never heard of this being done for desktop though. Do you know about this? As Flutter as an individual view or a platform view inside of Flutter? Either way. I think maybe adding it to, to an actual app would be probably be the way to go. Well, Showing a platform view in Flutter can certainly be done on mobile. Uh, I believe it can be done on web. I think it can be done on Windows. It can't be, it, last time I checked, it can't be done on Mac, which is a problem. It's been blocking 
the ability to show YouTube videos for like a year or more now because we can't embed the necessary platform view on, on Mac desktop. So there's at least partial support. In terms of in terms of showing Flutter as a standalone view, I mean, I, I did a bunch of add-to-app work, so I'm the one that made it possible to add a Flutter screen to an existing Android app. Uh, you can also add a fragment. Now, a fragment on Android doesn't have to take up the whole screen, so you could put a, frag, a, a Flutter fragment somewhere. I don't know if we made it possible to, to just add a Flutter view, but uh, honestly, probably a Flutter fragment is what you want anyway because I think you want the full Android lifecycle. On iOS, uh, I don't know. I, I didn't have any impact on that. I can't tell you how granular that control is. Yeah. So, Tony said the same thing, which is similar to what you said. Native video players for desktop. I think that's also something I would also like to see because I've had... There's some things that are not quite working on desktop yet that's kind of stopping me from saying that we're going to use this for all desktop software or that I'm just going to build desktop software and develop from there. Of course, there's some things like, you know, maybe NFC and stuff like that you cannot really use, but that's more really platform specific rather than something that's within Flutter. Yeah, that's a plugin. That's a plugin. But it's back to that, you know, democratic issue I was mentioning in terms of these feature sets. There are a lot of people on Twitter, I don't know if this was a month ago or what it was, but a bunch of people started saying, oh, Flutter, you know, Flutter should never have gone to web or desktop and Flutter should stop developing that and should focus exclusively on mobile. And every time I see that, I just, I'm so disappointed that those people are saying those things that's you, you simply don't understand the potential of flutter if you're saying that um not that i'm supportive of flutter not meeting certain bars on mobile but to give up the land grab on web and desktop just so we can get slight improvements on mobile i don't think you understand the the battle that's being fought here and I sure hope the Flutter team never listens to any of that. I'm worried they will because of how many people say it, but I sure hope they don't. Well, what else I'd like to see from Flutter is getting more, more stable on web, especially with adding in uh, hot code reload. That's huge. I think everybody wants that. I don't think there's one person out there who says, I don't want, I don't care about that feature on web yet, if they're actually using the web part. Yeah, I, for that, I often develop on a, with a Mac desktop app and then only when I want to deploy do I verify it on web. So I get hot reload on Mac desktop, and then I then I make sure it works on web. I'm not sure what the limiting factor is there. I mean, it must be a, it must be a deeper problem than it seems because, like you said, everybody wants it, and it, it's been missing this whole time. But uh, it's something I'd like. But as long as they have good desktop hot reload, I've been able to kind of avoid it. Yeah, I think that's everybody who's looking at that, and that's that's fine. And I know I talked to. Uh, I think her name is Harriam, mm, something with an M. I forgot her name at the top of my head. Yeah, Miriam. Miriam. Yeah, see, I have, maybe I have dyslexia or something. But uh, I talked with her about it. Yes, they're looking at it. Um, I think there's, yeah, like you said, there's some core issues that are stopping it from from happening. So hopefully they can. I worry that it's going to be such a problem that when they do fix it, it's going to cause upstream issues to everything else. Maybe, or maybe they just wait until WebAssembly is mainstream and that totally changes the game and it just kind of works out of the box. That'd be nice. Okay, so you got, so what were the things you said so far? So you said you want, you want to be able to embed Flutter and other things and other things in Flutter. Yep. You want more web stability and hot reload. Yep. Uh, Tony says, let's get some videos support on desktop. Any, anything else on your yes, priority list? Yes, one last thing. Um, not really Flutter specific, but I want Dart to be its own thing 
I feel like they stuck too much to Flutter, and I understand why, right? It works. But I want Dart to have its own style, right? There's no reason that Dart cannot do more than what it's doing. Very Good Ventures is doing cool stuff with their new web framework. ServerPod is also interesting too, but that's still kind of tied to Flutter. I would like Dart to start to be... So give me give me some examples to help contextualize that. So it sounds like you're suggesting there are some things that aren't in Dart right now that Dart could do that would then make Dart much more effective for de- uh, CLI apps and web apps or server apps. Is that right? I think there could be some things, but I, if you ask me to point stuff out, I couldn't point things out. I think the problem is just there's just not a big community compared to Flutter, compared to other language stuff, right? Python, huge community. Okay, so you're so really the issue that you're pinpointing there is that not enough of us in the community have created useful non-Flutter tools with Dart. Is that right? That's the way I see it. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Um, and w- the web server stuff is kind of is kind of disappointing because there used to be a thing called Aqueduct. So, like you mentioned, VGV, so they have their Dart frog now, and and you mentioned ServerPod as well. Um, those are kind of like spiritual successors to aqueduct which existed years ago but then it was retired because the company went and did something else and so it's you know it's unfortunate that sometimes we have tools and they go away and we have to reinvent them yeah which by the way shameless plug for the flutter bounty hunters the reason that we try to raise funding for many different companies and involve many different developers is so that hopefully none of these projects ever disappear on you hopefully we always have enough funding and enough developer support to keep them around i think this is a, uh, another thing too is why how come we didn't continue aqueduct as a community that's that's a really good question it seems like without that company why is it that aqueduct went away i just felt a little bit weird about that one well i think there was a lot less interest in dart for that purpose back then like there i'm not sure what confluence of factors made dart relevant again in the server space so i think aqueduct shut things down when there was very little interest. And then kind of all of a sudden over the last year, we've seen a resurgence. Now the question becomes, did ServerPod and DartFrog create the new interest or was the new interest growing and then DartFrog and ServerPod kind of jumped on top of it? I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's the fundamental answer to your question. The reason nobody picked it up back then is because not many people were trying to use Dart on the server. But we should also point out that um, Kevin Moore and others have been working in various ways to bring Dart to things like uh, GCP. Um, what's the, is it, is it run? Whatever the, the container running server system is on GCP, but also Firebase functions. Historically, Firebase functions are only JavaScript and TypeScript. They're trying to get a Dart implementation of those as well. So that's also in, inside of Google. That's creating some interest and focus on that use as well. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we had somebody from AWS in the show. Lambdas already support Dart, I think, for some time, if I remember correctly. It se- yeah, it seems like uh, AWS, for some reason, is faster to adopt Dart into their systems than Google is. And, uh, I mean, that's just that's just typical of Google, isn't it? But uh, it is what it is. May- maybe Amazon will incentivize Google to do it. February 25th, 2020 is when they introduced uh, Dart runtime for Lambda. Wow. It's a long time ago. Yeah, and nobody really knows about it because they don't really promote it, right? Well, I think, isn't isn't Salih running around the world talking about Amplify every chance he gets? Uh, he talked to me about it. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I haven't heard too much about 
amplify other than from him and that's about it and well because he's like he's he's paid by them he works for them yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah. so and I, I think he's been doing the the conference circuit to let people know um uh, you know me personally i've 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 stayed with gcp just because i have this maybe it's not correctly placed but i have this notion that i'm more likely to get the correct behavior when it's a google language and a google runtime that might be totally wrong. Maybe Amazon's doing a better job, but I'm just hesitant to jump over to an entirely new ecosystem just for that. Yeah, that, that's not like FUD, right? But that's like, uh, what do you call that? It's just like a preconception in your mind that because it's Google and you want Google stuff on it, it should be better, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a bias. It's an assumption and a bias. I won't run GCP. You know why I won't run GCP? Cost? Because uh, their support is like lack. Now, I'll tell you a very specific thing that happened to me. They just launched GCP in Hong Kong three years ago, two, three years ago. And they gave out credits like crazy. You know, these companies, they got tons of credits they can give out. So I took credits. And of course, I'm going to launch in Hong Kong because this is where I am. This is where most of my clients are. So I tried to launch, uh, I forgot what is the name of Kubernetes for GCP, but I tried to launch a Kubernetes cluster. It failed. I killed it, tried to try it again, failed. Fail, fail, fail. Many times I tried. I mailed support and said, hey, this is not working. You know, what's going on? Is there whatever? They said, oh, yeah, this is a known issue. Uh, we're working on it. Okay, cool. Um, do you know when it's going to be fixed? Nope. We don't know when it's going to be fixed. Uh, it'll be fixed when it gets fixed. And so I replied back, well, how do I know when it's going to be fixed, right? Because I don't want to keep trying. And their answer was, keep trying. And when it works, then you know it's fixed. Yep. So I'm like, <laughs> how can I work with this kind of company like this? It's, it's very difficult for me as I'm not the one who has to go to my client. Oh, sorry. I'm the one who has to go to the client and say, oh, sorry, GCP has issues. So it's not really working. And you know what they're going to say? Your problem because you told us to use GCP or whatever, right? Yeah. Google definitely has problems like that across various teams. Although I, all of these big tech companies, if I ever find myself in an issue tracker, that's always what it looks like. It's like these ambiguous non-answers, uh, pointing fingers somewhere else, like anything but actually recognizing and solving the problem. Uh, and part of it, you can also tell when people are hired to respond to those questions that have they have no idea what they're talking about, but it's their job to triage and give initial responses. And this is what you get. You get these totally useless non-solutions, and it's super frustrating. And like, there's no phone number you can dial to get a human on the phone to be like, listen to my voice. I need you to solve this. No, it's just responding to this never-ending thread that doesn't go anywhere. Just, yeah, just the fact that you cannot just put me on. A, I mean, sure, this must be a mailing list of, of something that you can put me on, because I can't be the only one with this kind of problem. If I am, that's 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 insane. That doesn't really make sense. Uh, Tony actually said that Cloudflare workers also support Dart, which is interesting. I didn't even know about that. Is it, it... My only familiarity with Cloudflare is like to prevent DDoS attacks or something. Do they also do like general hosting or something? I think they have edge computing where you can launch something on the edge. So I think that's what it is. Okay. Uh, I, I think I talked about what I'm looking for. I, not too many things are coming to my head at the moment. I'm sure you have something on your mind that you think that Flutter needs to bring in. A lot, I'm sure. Well, actually, I mean, I've I've thought about it. It's fewer things than one would think. Um, but one thing on my list is support for runtime compiled shaders. So shaders are 
they're the most powerful tool at your disposal in a 2D user interface. Like it's if ever if nothing else does what you need, there are shaders at the very bottom of the whole stack of technology. And in general, I mean, I think on Android and iOS, this is you can do this no problem. But you you take a shader script, you compile it at runtime for your app, and then you can use it to do all sorts of interesting rendering effects. Flutter has partial support for this. Like remember when we were talking about that stretch effect on Android? That's with the shader. So they had to have some shader support. But they they have the Flutter team has yet to say that they are committed to ever shipping general runtime shader support. And I think that's a huge mistake. And I would love for them to backtrack on that. And in 2023, I'd like for them to give us general runtime shader support. Like they don't need to create a whole bunch of helpful tools. Just let us take a script, our own script, and shove it in to the shader system at runtime. And that should be good enough. Uh, but some of the cool things, that, like imagine, think about, you know, in YouTube videos where you have all these interesting transitions, like you might have um, a, a distortion effect where it looks like the video has some kind of issue for a moment and that transitions between scenes or maybe an electricity effect or you have some kind of, of compositor effect like that. You could actually do that in your app in real time. Like that could be how you navigate between pages. You could do that if you had shader support, but we don't have shader support. Uh, and so it's just, this is one of the areas I also mentioned earlier that the Flutter team should focus on the things that only the Flutter team can do because by definition, the rest of us can't do it. Shader support is one of those examples. There's no escape hatch here. There's no working around it. Flutter owns the compositor and rendering pipeline. So either they open that pipeline or we don't get it. So I would love for them to ship that. Uh, beyond that, I mentioned earlier, I would like for them to actually commission community members to do work that the community can do. I'd like to see them actually do that. I don't, I don't think there's a chance in hell that they will. Uh, they'll probably just say Google has X and Y policies against this, and that's the end of the discussion. And so they'll keep trying to support six platforms and Material and Cupertino with 50 developers, and you know they'll continue to get some of the unfortunate results they've had. But I wish that they would find a way to pay the community to do work that they don't have headcount to do. And let's see, beyond that, I think I made a list here of some things. That might be all of them, but let's see. Did you see the the tweet that showed the pull request for adding new 3D support to, to the Impeller engine? No, I haven't seen that one. So I didn't look deeply into this, and I have no idea why the team is prototyping this or what they intend to do with it. <clears throat> but there was a, an experimental PR into Impeller. So Impeller is, the, is going, it seems like it's going to replace Skia. So this Impeller, this new engine, <clears throat> has a PR going into it that's introducing some initial support for 3D graphics. Again, unclear what they're trying to do with it or why, but, and I don't even know if that's a good thing because what I would point out to the audience is that it might sound really awesome that they're doing 3D, but if they haven't even given us correct 2D shader support, uh, the priorities seem messed up here. So I don't know what this means yet, but we can be cautiously optimistic that there's going to be some cool stuff on the other side of that. Um, also... <clears throat> also, I, I talked with two members, one member, two members affiliated with the Flutter team recently. And you'll remember in our last two talks when we talked about super editor and documents and how the Flutter team messaging was that like 
Flutter shouldn't be used for static content. And I was really annoyed because I was writing Super Editor to lay out static content. I talked with a couple of people where at least some positive opinions were expressed about using Flutter for static content. This is the first expression. Uh, this is the first positive expression from the Flutter organization I have heard to date about using Flutter for static content. Uh, now, there was a place where they should have used Super Editor and they didn't. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get them to reverse that. But at le if they're coming around on static content, that's great. So if 2023, if the Flutter team finally admits that, of course, Flutter should be used for static content, of course, that's reasonable, then that would be a good step in the right direction, too. Uh, speaking about the 3D topic, uh, Tony asked, um, how to make 3D text effects like the old MS Word word art in Flutter? I don't know. I don't know how they did it. Um, it's depending on the effect. They may have just pre-computed all the... <clears throat> well, I guess it, you could use any font, right? So there had to be some algorithm to it. I don't know if there was any actual 3D behavior involved at all. It may have just been careful two-dimensional painting. But I'd have to go look it up. First, I'd look up how they implemented it in in PowerPoint and Word or whatever, and then I'd see if we could do that in Flutter. If it's actually 3D, then you're probably waiting on vertex shaders from this new impeller work, assuming it ever actually becomes production ready. Uh, I know Roa has got some really cool stuff. If you Have you seen her some of her work that she's working on? Well, I saw, I watched your interview with her. And by the way, you're going like, you're going crazy this week. You had three interviews in three days that have aired. Yeah, I'm quite busy. I've been getting home past midnight every day. <laughs> it's brutal. Well, see, um, so I say yeah, I saw your interview, and I've seen I saw her isometric keyboard. Actually, like I can't, I don't know if it was earlier this year or last year. I started working on isometric rendering <clears throat> in Flutter. I never published anything for it, but I was thinking that it would be fun to create a real time strategy game engine with Flutter, because my growing up, my favorite series of games was Command and Conquer. And those are all pixel art uh, isometric games. And so I was like, it'd be, it'd be awesome if we could design our own kind of Command and Conquer game in Flutter. So I started programming the rendering of isometric tiles. I got to the point where I had like an infinite canvas of tiles so I could scroll in any direction and just have tiles moving on the screen. And then I got busy with stuff that actually pays bills and <laughs> haven't been back to it since. I was actually going to guess that your favorite game that you're about to mention was going to be Command and Conquer. I don't know why, but that seems like everybody really loved that game. Well, and I guess, and specifically, I would say it was Red Alert to Yuri's Revenge. Okay. I played all the games through my childhood, but that one game was like the climax of the series for me. Yeah, I, I don't remember Red Alert Two, but of course I remember Red Alert. I've only played Red Alert. I might have played a little bit of Red Alert Two, but I think Red Alert's probably like the the, the Mario of all the games where everybody's played it. Maybe it's not the best, but it's definitely the most popular. Like nobody's really played Command and Conquer too much, I think, compared to Red Alert. I think that one's just huge. Well, I think specifically Red Alert 2. That was, I think that, because there, like, there are still people on YouTube now <clears throat> who record themselves playing online. They have like a version that kind of works on the current version of Windows. And so there are still people putting out YouTube videos and have, having multiplayer games in Red Alert 2. So even now it remains somewhat popular. Okay, yeah, maybe I'll have to play that sometime. I have a Windows computer sitting over here. I'm sure I could probably find it on Steam. Usually Steam's got everything. Yeah, I think I think I installed whatever that tool is that lets me essentially emulate Windows on a Mac. I installed that. I bought that specifically so that I could download 
uh, Yuri's Revenge for Windows. And then you have to kind of patch it in a certain way. And I, unfortunately, I was never quite able to get it to work, which was really disappointing. But uh, if I could, I'd, I'd play that game for sure. Is, is there anything else on your list that you're hoping for Flutter to, to put in for this upcoming year? I think that's everything. I mean, I'm sure I could find other stuff. Those are probably the big things on my list. I should also announce, I mentioned this earlier, but I'll announce it again. So I've launched a blog for Flutter Bounty Hunters. So if you go to blog.flutterbountyhunters.com, it's there. Right now, the only post is a post saying we've launched the blog that you're reading on the blog. Uh, and what I'm also doing, <clears throat> I've launched a podcast and I'm going to read, essentially read the blog posts on the podcast. So if you want to consume it in audio form, you can do that as well. But I'll also eventually do interviews on that podcast. So I'm sure one day you can join me on my show and we can keep going back and forth and doing crossover episodes. But I'm also going to, I plan to interview companies that I'm working with through the Flutter Bounty Hunters. So I'll, I'll try to find somebody to come on from Superlist and maybe Clearful and Turtle and let the community meet those people and see what they're building. Uh, so if anybody wants to subscribe, again, blog.flutterbountyhunters.com and the podcast is called On the Hunt, a Flutter podcast. I think it's still propagating through various <clears throat> indexes, but you should be able to find it on Amazon, Spotify, Apple, and Google. Um, and then if I can quickly overview some of the other packages that we have for the Flutter Bounty Hunters, just in case the audience wants to try them out or anything. I mentioned Flutter processing earlier. So processing is this, it's a 20-year-old kind of API for prototyping and learning about visual programming. I created a Flutter version of it. So if you want to explore creative coding with Flutter, you can use Flutter processing to get those easy APIs, but you can deploy it anywhere that Flutter goes. And then I took the core of that because part of what you can do in processing is you can set individual pixel colors. This is what we were talking about with Tony earlier in the conversation. <clears throat> with processing, you can say like, make that pixel red. You actually can't do that with any existing Flutter API as it is today. You have to go... Uh, create, you have to go get your own bitmap memory from the engine and then set the pixels. Bitmap Canvas does that for you. So if you want that power in your app for whatever reason, go check out Bitmap Canvas. Also, you were talking about using Dart itself for other purposes. Um, we created FFmpeg CLI, which is essentially a Dart representation of FFmpeg commands. Uh. So you can compose FFmpeg commands using Dart. Now that's made to run on desktop. If somebody, I had a couple companies come to me and say, hey, can we commission you to make it work on Android? And I said, sure. And then the companies never responded again. So I don't, I don't know what their deal was. But if any company wants to run that on mobile, we can make that happen too. We just need the funding. And on top of FFmpeg CLI, oh, hey, I just saw that Angelo is in the chat. Angelo, glad to see you're here. Hope you're enjoying the talk. Uh, for those that don't know, Angelo here, he's been doing a lot of the day-to-day -day work on Super Editor. So as we have little new features come in and bugs, Angelo's been great about getting those things solved, writing great tests, great PRs. If you want to see how to effectively contribute to open source, I fully recommend checking out the work that Angelo has done on Super Editor. Yeah, again, I'll, I'll be taking a look at Super Editor. Um, I'm, I want to see... Yeah, I would like to build a simple POC and then maybe we might come back if I can convince them to use it. But we have a lot of stuff already built in JavaScript, so it's hard for me to convince people to to bring this on. Like I, if, if we had the ability just to do the editor and embed that into JavaScript and make it all kind of work, because there's also going to be stuff on the outside too, right? 
you might, yeah, you might find that that's possible. So I'd say first, go make sure that you can't do that because you might be able to, and that might easily solve that problem for you. Yeah. Uh, so we were talking about packages, right? So we were talking about FFmpeg CLI. So that's, again, that's like, literally you can take the command that you would write in the terminal for FFmpeg and there's a Dart version of it. But those commands are inherently a huge pain to figure out. Like it's a really complex and tedious syntax. So we also have a package called Cutting Room where we've created a declarative way to compose videos. <clears throat> so you can, you can say like, show this video with this image on top of the video for this duration. It looks a lot like a widget tree, but when you run it, it produces a video using FFmpeg under the hood. Um, and one of the reasons, by the way, that I want more video rendering support on desktop is because I want to actually build a video editor using Flutter and Dart. But can't do that yet because of the limitations. Also, uh, have you ever written any golden tests? Do you generate any of those screenshot tests? Just have a hard time to figure out, is it really worth it? They're kind of like a little bit of a mystery. There's not a lot of people talking about these golden tests. Okay. I've used golden tests heavily on projects in the past. So for anyone in the audience that doesn't know what a golden test is, it's another name for a screenshot test. Your Flutter code runs like a widget test, but it Unlike most widget tests, which actually don't paint anything, your golden test does paint the pixels and it writes them to a file. And the next time you run the test, it paints the pixels again and literally does a diff, old pixels versus new pixels. And if any of them don't match, it triggers a failure. Now, on the one hand, it, that can, you can end up with a lot more failures than you want to deal with. So you want to be, like, I remember I mentioned earlier that tests are really about locking things down. It's not about correctness. It's about, I've seen what my code does. I want it to keep doing that. So if you ever get a screen where you as a developer, you want to be notified if that screen ever changes for any reason, a golden test is an easy way to do it. The golden test can cover the sizes, the positions, the colors. You get every last detail of that screen locked down and it'll trigger a failure if anything ever changes. So if that's ever what you want, then a golden test is the right answer. But there's one really annoying thing about golden tests, which is that they use this font. They don't use a normal font because normal fonts have a lot of curves. Curves require anti-aliasing algorithms. Those algorithms are very sensitive and they change all the time. So you end up with tiny, tiny minor pixel differences you don't care about, but it triggers a failure on your golden test. So by default, golden tests use a font called AHEM or AHEM or A-H-E-M. And it replaces every character of text with a, a square. <clears throat> and not only are they squares, but the squares have no space between them. So a line of text actually just looks like a line on the screen. On the one hand, that doesn't trigger any more of those false failures. On the other hand, it totally misrepresents actual text layout. Because if you look at any real text, almost none of your characters are that wide. Like the letter L is a very narrow rectangle, right? Well, your letter L just got replaced by a big old square. And so a bunch of stuff starts overflowing your layout that ordinarily wouldn't. For example, in your app bar, you might have a title in your app bar. That title is always very tiny in real text. And in the moment you render a golden test, your app bar title is massive and it's overflowing your action buttons on the right. It's annoying. So I went out and commissioned a font designer to create a new font, a font that still renders rectangles, 
but the rectangles are roughly the size of the actual characters that they represent. So an L is a very narrow rectangle. Uh, the letter B is about twice as tall as it is wide. And there's a little bit of space between every letter so that if, for example, let's say you work on, I don't know, a text editor, and you need to make sure that your selection rectangles are painted in the right place and the carrot sits in the right place, the only way to do that is to actually see the space between the characters. So this font has character sizes that are more appropriate, and it has spaces between them. That, and I've released that open source. It's in a package called Golden Bricks, also on GitHub. So you can now use that in your golden tests, and you can generally fix that text layout problem that happens by default. Again, Golden Bricks on Pub and GitHub. And then the last package that I'll mention, which um, we haven't really quite gone public with this yet, but I'm hoping we will soon. We've actually figured out how to take the pixels from your Flutter UI and render them to video. So imagine that you program an animation in Flutter. You can turn that Flutter animation into a video. We're, so that, that's, a, that's a project that's actually funded by a company, and we're working to get it in a, in a stable enough state that it can be used in general. As soon as we do, that package will, will be public and we'll make an announcement and all that. But just to get people maybe a little bit excited, that's something we're working on. Speaking of interfacing with C code, that one needed some C code. And I had to bring in Simon Lightfoot to figure that out. We talked about this one when we met up because I remember we were talking about this when we were walking away from Google campus. Oh, were we? I think so. I remember talking about this one. I guess, I guess that's how long it's been in tinkering in the works. It's, it's taken a while to get here. And so I'm, but I'm hopeful that maybe by the end of the year, we can get something released. It's cool. It's going to be open source, right? That's definitely the plan or, or you're hoping it, for it to be the plan? I'm hoping. It's so right now I'm waiting on the client to verify that it works for them. If they come back with like a laundry list of bugs or problems, we're going to have to figure that out. But if they come back and say, yes, this did what we expected it to do the way we want it to do it, then we might be at a point where we can say, okay, then we can trust that other people will also be able to use it and we can go ahead and release it. Now, uh, let me... So it looks like Tony had a comment here or question. He said, is FFmpeg hardware accelerated? Isn't it CPU encoder and decoder? Well, my guess is that there's a, I don't know what the default is, but I have to assume that there are ways you can compile FFmpeg to utilize platform specific acceleration. Because FFmpeg is like an industry standard for streaming and video encoding at this point. Um, now, whether, whether, FFmpeg CLI, the Dart package, works with the accelerated version. I can't tell you. Um, what I can tell you, though, is that <clears throat> all of my YouTube videos at this point are rendered using Cutting Room. So every one of my videos, I create a little manifest that tells my videos where to cut, and then I render it using my Cutting Room package, which internally uses the FFmpeg CLI package. So I've, in that, that renders faster than I would get typically out of After Effects. So I've been very happy with that. Okay, yeah, this is quite cool. I think I have to follow your the Bounty, Bounty Hunters uh, account and see what's going on. There's a lot of pretty cool stuff in here. Yeah, that's, that's probably a good thing for the audience to do. So anyone in the audience, go check out the Flutter Bounty Hunters GitHub organization and you should be able to follow us and you'll find out when we publish new packages. I'm starting to wonder now if there's a way. I mean, I think is image magic actually possible in Flutter? Should be. 
or something similar, screenshots. Because I did have uh, an issue. Uh, I was creating QR codes for something and I can only get PNG unless I pay extra money. <laughs> but with image magic, you can only go, you have to go from PNG to PHM or something. I've never even heard of this one until yesterday. And then PHM to vector SVG. There is no easy way to go from PNG to SVG. How are you going from PNG to vector? That shouldn't, that doesn't make any sense. Like I said, it's using some PHM or something. And then there's a program called Pottrace or Potrace or something that will go from that file. Okay. So you're, you're not, you're not converting formats. You're like, you're literally applying an algorithm that attempts to create vectors that look like your PNG. Is that right? I believe so. I'm just using convert from image magic. So what it's doing, I'm not exactly sure, but it creates, you can go from PNG to PNM, which I don't know what a PMM is. Uh, this is intermediate file format. PNM is an acronym for portable any map. Ask your binary format, raster images formatted plain text. Okay, interesting. So you go from raster images to text format, and then you can take PNM and go to a vector using something called PO trace. Yeah, PO trace must be act must actually be doing work because it, it it doesn't make like yeah. bitmap is fundamentally not vector. So if you're going from bitmap to vector, something must be trying to emulate your pixels with vectors. This one, the PO trace says it's a tool for tracing a bitmap, which means transforming a bitmap into a smooth, scalable image. Input PGM. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So that's how it works. Yeah. So, I mean, I would love to have some kind of way to do that with Dart rather than me having to run two different programs by hand just to, you know, maybe make a Flutter app, drag and drop, kick it out because it's an easy problem, I think, to solve. What we should probably do as a community is get a bunch of us together and just port a whole bunch of C libraries with Dart FFI. Just create Dart versions of all sorts of popular C packages, put them on PubDev, and then we have all those at our fingertips from that point forward. Yes, but you know you're going to hear back from from people is oh why are you going to why rewrite everything into Dart right you're going to hear that. Well, but it's not but it's not rewriting. It's it's just allowing you to use that. It's actually the opposite of that. We're using the existing tool and we're making it accessible to Dart developers so that we don't have to rewrite all those tools. But when we when we're using the the FFMP FFmpeg, you have to actually have FFmpeg installed for that to work, right? Yep. Okay, so that's the only issue is you have to get people to install that. It'd be nice if no need to install stuff if it's possible. Well, the uh, uh, the package that we're, that turns your Flutter UI into video, it's using FFmpeg as well. And we have a, pro a little program that will download the FFmpeg version for you. But honestly, in general, I mean, the, what it means to install FFmpeg on a Mac is to say brew install FFmpeg. So it... And, and then you get to choose where it gets installed and which version and all that. So I generally like to not be in the business of dictating those things. No, I, I agree. But the only issue is, yeah, you're, you're, you have to rely that they have a stable internet connection, that they have, you know, whatever. That I've, I've seen so many people unable to run Flutter stuff in these developing countries because of internet connection, especially with Android, right? Everybody's got Android because they're relatively cheaper than iOS. And they try to run it and it has to run, I think, I think it's still running, I'm sorry, it's running Gradle. Gradle will fail because of their internet connection or they need to run a VPN or et cetera. And then that's a whole nother issue, right? Yeah. And that, that sounds like a problem that everybody's got now. So I'll let the big boys solve that problem. And uh, until then, I'm just going to say, listen, you getting FFmpeg on your machine is your responsibility. Tony said something very interesting right now. He said, 
we can take advantage of multi-threading from these C libraries. I don't see how that would make a difference though, right? It can, depending on what you're doing. Uh, in fact, I'm working on a project right now, which would be a very good example of that, but I can't, I can't discuss that project yet. Um, so let me see where I, how, what other kind of example I could come up with. Let's go back to, let's go back to bitmap canvas. So again, what are we doing with that package? We're giving you a Dart API where you can say, make this pixel red. And what we have to do is load stuff from the Flutter engine, make a change and send it back. And I technically loading it from the Flutter engine is, that does happen on a different thread already. But let's, let's, I'll change it slightly. Let's say that what you're painting is fundamentally complex. Like let's say you're painting the Mandelbrot set. So you're, you're painting in a million pixels. If you do that in Flutter's event loop, that's going to take a very long time and it's going to make your UI janky. And so what do you do? Well, you might say, oh, I'll go paint it on a background. I'll create an isolate in the background and I'll paint it there. The problem is Flutter doesn't share that memory. So you can't put that on a background isolate. You have to do it on Flutter's main isolate, the main thread. So you have to ruin, you have to have a janky UI. An alternative is to just send a message over to C code and say, hey, C code, paint the Mandelbrot set for me. And then your C code paints a million pixels on its own thread and then gives you access to the pixels that it painted. Now today, that still doesn't really work because you still have to get those pixels into the Flutter engine, which takes a long time. But in concept, but for that one problem of shared bitmap memory, you could let the C code figure out how to paint it. Or it could paint something way more complicated, or it could paint something 10 times larger, and it would never impact your main Flutter event loop because C can do whatever it wants with threads. So could Rust, so could anything else. Uh, the fundamental issue is that the Flutter engine owns certain things that get in the way. Doesn't, I think there's a new version, one of the recent versions of Dart lets you actually have isolates that share memory. Isn't that still happening? I think I remember hearing something about that. I can't remember exactly what was shared, but there was some kind of sharing. So you could spin up <clears throat> a thousand isolates instead of like 10 isolates. But you still, isolate communication. So maybe it was sharing resources under the hood. Mm -hmm. But I think isolate communication only allows you to send primitives. Okay. So you can send, you can send numbers, you can send strings, you can send lists of numbers, that kind of stuff. But I don't think you can send a pointer to memory, which means still the cost of moving an entire image across isolates is the cost of sending all those pixel numbers over, which is very expensive. That's a, it's a million numbers, right? A million numbers you have to send across and put into new memory. I do remember that I could have sworn that they added support, but there's some caveats to it. Like you said, you can only have, like you said, 10,000, but that's still probably enough for most people and a couple other things, but you couldn't, yeah, you can share some things, but not everything. It was something weird like that. Maybe somebody in the audience remembers what it was. It's like the last version of Flutter, I think, announced this one. Yeah, I think the only time that I've tried to use isolates was very recently where I tried their text layout in Flutter happens with an object called a paragraph. You create a paragraph builder, then you give it some text, you build a paragraph, and then you measure the paragraph, you, you lay out the paragraph. And I wanted to do that on a background thread. So I tried to put it in another isolate. 
but Flutter complained that I wasn't allowed to run those operations outside the main isolate, so I couldn't do it. Yeah, there's some things you cannot do, and I understand. I remember that. I remember doing it with iOS. Like whenever you wanted to update the UI, you'd have to dispatch the function back to the main thread, which was a little bit annoying, but uh, I guess it makes sense because the way the, the whole thing is written. It's just, this gets a little bit weird. Um, yeah, although in like in Java, you can still share references across threads. So you can have a really heavy object, you create it on a background thread, and maybe you use it on the main thread, but at least you can hand it off. The problem with isolates is that I'm not aware of any way to hand it off. You, ha you can't give a reference. You have to serialize all the data on one side and then deserialize all the data on the other side, and that largely defeats the purpose. Yeah, so the Dart isolates are not, they're not the most straightforward, but I haven't really had a need to use isolate at all for anything so far. I know people always say usually if you use it for like parsing large JSON objects, but it never came up so far in my work. Well, again, the pro so there might, if you try it out, you might get some benefit there. But the problem there again is, okay, you finished parsing it. You have this, this massive map that you've parsed. That's what JSON is, is a map. Yeah. You still have to send that map across the isolate boundary. So you still have to, you, there are, I think there, I think there's separated memory. So you've parsed it over here in this memory, and then you need to transfer it over to this different memory. So you have to, you have to spend all the time to move it from one memory address into another, the whole thing, not just a reference, the whole map. And so that might take more time than the parsing, depending on the details, right? So even that's not an obvious win. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. I guess it depends on how the, the VM's written. Uh, I when I had my talk with um, I had a mess, had a show with uh, Lund, I, I believe his name is, who worked on Dart language itself. Uh, a lot of the stuff that comes from the Dart VM is actually coming from Erlang, and that's why we have these isolates similar to the processes in Beam. Um, I know the way Beam works is if you have a large what they call binary. You, underneath the hood, you're actually not making a copy of it, but you are passing a reference, but then that binary is actually immutable. So that's kind of the way that they work around it. I don't think you have immutable data necessarily in Dart, so you can't really handle that because if something changes, then you're going to be screwed, right? This is why I think the issue that comes with why you have to copy everything and it could be such a bigger problem. Yeah, and so I, and I have no idea what it would take to give us the ability to pass references, but it, it would be a bit of a game changer if we could. And look, I don't care if they introduce some syntax where you have to say, I acknowledge this is super, super duper dangerous. Fine, I'll add that annotation. I will opt in to super, super, super dangerous as long as I'm allowed to pass that reference because then I can actually do background work. Then I could paint pixels on a background isolate and use it in the, in the Flutter isolate. But right now I can't do that. Maybe it's good that we have some limitations, right? We can't have, there's no such thing as the perfect framework without some kind of caveat, some kind of negative part to it, right? You can't, you can't have your, well, yes, you can't the, have your pudding to eat your meat, right? So you got to have something. On the, on the one hand, on the one hand, yes, everything is a trade-off. On the other hand, almost every time I've heard a developer say that, it was as an excuse for doing something bad that they didn't have to do. So be careful with the truisms. If it truly is a trade-off you have to make, fine. But don't just do something, don't just leave a feature out and make the excuse that you, it's a trade-off. Why is it a trade-off? Why can't we do it? What does it cost to do it? Make it clear why that's the only reasonable option. Yeah, that's a good point. That could spin off a whole can of worms, right? Because it could be we just don't have the time. 
don't have the interest. It takes too long. Yep. And it, I think it takes too long. It's really open-ended thing, right? What does it mean? It's going back to how small is a small function or small code, right? Same thing. How long is too long? Yeah. And, and once you explain the reasons, then there might be mitigations. You know, maybe your reason for not doing something, maybe I have the answer to solve that. But we're not going to know it if you just say, well, sometimes we trade off things. Oh, well, like, well, how about you just tell me what specifically the problem is and then we can have a conversation. Well, Tony states that thread safety comes with a toll. And that makes some sense. There's some, usually there's a runtime uh, penalty, right? If you're waiting for a, a lock to let go of something, there's, that's the toll is you're wasting CPU cycles once in a while. Yeah. Or, or I mean, like in, in Java, you're supposed to lock things and you're supposed to use semaphores at various times. And if you don't, then you risk, you know, like corrupting memory or something. So there's that risk as well. But that's my point is <clears throat> I, I, I will, o I promise to only use that ability when I absolutely need it, but sometimes I absolutely need it. And so I would like to have that option available to me, even if it's a compiler flag, even if it's an annotation, whatever. Um, but it, in a world where it's not possible, like think about it this way. Which one of these in aggregate is more dangerous? The lack of memory safety in a Dart isolate or making a Dart programmer learn how to use C code to compile a static library to link over Dart FFI and still do the thing in memory that's dangerous? Because that's the alternative. That's what you have to do if it's not the first one. So the, the danger argument, if that's the team's stance, I don't think holds up. Now you're going into almost a political issue, right? Where it's like, well, if somebody really wants to do something, they're going to find a way to do it. So either give them the ability to do it or we'll just, you know, do the long route. Well, it's, it's a saying want, I think makes it a little too weak. If I have to do it, if this is what the business has dictated, the choice of not doing it isn't even my choice. So there are three options before me. I can stop using flutter. I can use flutter with this a completely additional technology that I don't really understand, which inherently is dangerous because I don't understand it. Or the Dart language can provide an unsafe operation that I opt into. Those are the only three options once a business says you have to do something. So I don't think we want to push people out of Flutter. And of the other two options, I think it's pretty obvious that a Dart-based option that we understand is safer than the C or Rust option that most of us don't understand. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, still going to be some trade-offs, right? People just opt into whatever because they're not really understanding. They just need to get something done. That is another issue, but I guess that's an issue on their side, not on the Dart team side, stopping you from doing something that maybe you really want to do and really know what you're doing, right? Well, and, and again, just, okay, make, just make it impossible to do it by accident. Make, make me jump through a bunch of little hoops to say that I want to do it. And then if someone still jumps through all those hoops and does something stupid, can we just agree that some people are stupid and they should probably be fired from their job and let's not base our tools off of stupid people? <sighs> wow, that's a pretty open question. I don't know. Sometimes people do things because they're desperate and somebody's breathing down their neck. Does it mean that they're stupid? I don't know. Does it mean that they're careless? Could be. Does it mean that they don't care? I don't know. It's We've been in situations where we've been pushed, right? Should the language, Should the capabilities of the language be defined by certain managers breathing down the necks of certain developers somewhere in the world? If that's the bar for deciding how the language evolves, I think you're going to find a lot of issues that prevent you from doing much of anything. Um, as my point at the end of the day is, for the most part, we have to respect each other as grown-ups with brains and assume that we are thinking things through. 
racing to the bottom in any regard is going to produce poor results. So if we're creating a, like, I have no problem with keeping Dart very, very simple so that new people can jump into it easily. I'm a big proponent of that. Like a lot of these people who want Dart to be like the second version of Kotlin, I'm not in that camp at all. Like the cost of a language feature is difficult to overstate. When you add something like you and I, it's easy to learn new language things because we're learning it in real time. Let's say that Flutter or so Dart, let's say that Dart ships a new language feature every three months. For you and me, that cost is nil. We can learn something new every three months. But when someone comes out of college and tries to learn Dart, they have to learn all of Dart in about three months. So every time you add a feature, not only do you increase the immediate learning footprint for every new developer today, but you increase it for every new developer forever into the future. And language features tend to be monotonically increasing. Nothing ever gets removed. Stuff only gets added. So the, the, the burden only increases. So I'm a really big fan of a dead, simple language and let all the complexity come through packages and extensions and things like that. But that is very different from a rationale that says we want a language that, that people who don't know what they're doing can't do the wrong thing. That's kind of a race to the bottom. I don't think we want training wheels. We just want a bike that's simple enough to ride that anybody can quickly learn how to ride it, uh, but that it it can meet the needs that anybody is likely to have from a programming language. I think you're going to like Rust a lot then because it kind of does what you're describing. It's extremely small in the standard library and that gives you an escape hatch by running the unsafe keyword. And it also has, uh, yeah, it doesn't really evolve so much. Uh, and yeah, you can do a lot of stuff. I mean, I think that's something that really hits all the key points that you talked about. Yeah. Although again, Rust is a systems language. Let's never forget that. So hopefully I do enjoy it. Hopefully it solves some of my problems, but I never want to see Rust being used for app development. I think Dart is, we should just push Dart to be the right language for that purpose. Yeah, that's why I wish that we could make more use of Dart. You know, I, I, if we expand into more than just Flutter for Dart, then I think that you'll see it. You'll see it also expand a little bit more and get a little bit more versatility, right? Like when you, I don't know, when you know more programming languages, you start to have different ideas, right? So when we start using Dart in different areas, we might get more uh, good ideas for the Flutter community itself. So that's what I'd like to see. I mean, the PDF library that you talked about before that definitely changed my mind about maybe using Dart for other things because I thought, okay, this is really cool. And it's also similar to Flutter. So it's really easy to use. Which library is that? It's just called PDF. I think you talked about it before with me. Is that, is that the one that where you, it, it has things that look like widgets, but they generate yeah. a PDF document. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. That's something I'm thinking about. PDFX. I don't know what the heck that one is. PDFX is a renderer. There's like 50 different rendering packages and they all work the exact same way for the most part. What they do is they run the platform renderer. So they'll run the Android renderer, which will output a bitmap. And then Flutter just displays the bitmap. So none of the rendering is actually happening in Flutter. It's happening on Android or on iOS. And you're just seeing the bitmap that comes out. I see. Well, that seems like the right thing to do. I mean, why do we need to build out something else? Unless there's a problem. I do know a couple of people that are actually rebuilding things because the native platform 
maybe is unsafe or has got some problems or missing something, et cetera. But usually people are trying to rebuilding PDF or rebuilding other things, no, other things. I think, I think there was somebody who was rebuilding like web views or something because there were, there were some un unstable issues and things not supported across. And I, uh, just a quick aside, I think it would be interesting to see what it would look like if we built a web browser in flutter. Yeah. I don't know how it's a lot of work. I think, no, I'm sure. And I, and it, you know, that kind of boutique project, it would never match the performance profile or something of Chrome, and that's fine. But it would be interesting to see what it would look like to build a uh, to build a web browser with Dart and Flutter. I mean, obviously, the shell would be the most interesting part, but those are getting smaller and smaller by the day. I mean, it shouldn't be too hard to do. The only tricky bit is all parsing the HTML and displaying it and the CSS and the JavaScript and everything else. If you're talking about the entire thing. Well, that's the thing is... Yeah, I mean, I mean, nominally, one would think we could probably put a basic version of one together in an afternoon, right? I mean, I guess, I don't know what we do to actually render the page. Um, so once we parse the HTML and the CSS and the JavaScript, I guess we could bring a V8 engine with us, but then uh, we'd need an implementation of the DOM and we'd need an implementation of box layout. So I don't know, but that's just an idea to throw out into the world and see if it piques anybody's curiosity. Yeah, that would, would be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about quite a lot of stuff. We've been talking for about two and a half hours now. We always go for a long time. I'm sure. I think people are complaining that, because now it's about 11.30 in the morning. I think people are complaining that I have the lights off in the office while they're trying to work <laughs> by candlelight, basically. <laughs> or actually by phone light. I literally walked, when I went to use the bathroom, come back, I saw somebody had their phone out like this, working. <laughs> So, well, you, you don't, you don't let them keep the lights. Wait, why do you have people there working at 1130? What are they doing that late? 1130 AM, right? Don't forget I'm on the other side of the world. Oh, AM, AM. Wait, so why, why are your lights off out there? Uh, well, whoever did the electrical, we only have two switches, right? It's for one half and one half. So mine is, <laughs> mine's there. Okay. Mine's on that half. I'd probably, I'd probably bring someone in to fix that, but I get whatever works for you. If so, that's the one thing that I would love to have. If there's a shout out there, if you guys are looking for some Flutter help, let me know. Then I can fix my lights. Support my lights, please. <laughs> Put a what's the GoFundMe? GoFundMe? Yeah. Go GoFundMe to fix the lights. Yeah, I could do that, but. I'd rather put it to something else. I mean, I try not to do these in the daytime, but this is a special one with Thanksgiving, right? So it's okay. Once in a while is okay. Just for me. You roll out the red carpet for me once in a while. You booked the time before I could fix By the By the way, am I now, <laughs> am, I, uh, am I the guest who's now been on your show the most times? I think so. I think you had two times before, right? I have only had two times with the Max, so this is the third time, yeah. All right. I plan to run away with it. <laughs> stop, stop while you're already ahead. Retire young. Retire oh, no, I'm, just gonna keep, I'm just going to keep gaining. So when, when these next couple of packages come out, I'll come back to talk about them and that'll be number four and then five and then six and pretty soon no one's ever going to catch me. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about the On The Hunt podcast, right? I tried looking for it, but I found there's another podcast also called On The Hunt. There's probably a bunch. You have to do like the full name, On The Hunt, a Flutter podcast. And which index are you checking? I just ran it through Google. Uh, okay. So I think for some reason... The Google index wasn't working, but Apple and Spotify and Amazon seem to have it listed. Yeah. I think I've seen on, on Amazon, like music.amazon.ca, that's Canada. I don't know why that one comes up. It's the number one result. Yeah, I don't know. Some weird indexing thing. Yep. Three days ago, five minute long episode. Yep. 
So that first episode is just me essentially reading the same information that's in the blog post, which is announcing the launch of the blog and the podcast. Let me see. Is it on Spotify yet or you haven't checked? Yeah, it should be on Spotify. Oh, it's a Flutter podcast at the end. Yeah, I see it on here. Cool. Let me listen to it after this. And everybody listening to this should go subscribe to that so that it starts getting indexed higher so people can actually find it since I chose a name that's utterly ambiguous. Yeah, so there's some guy with last name Hunt. That's why he chose On the Hunt. And I think he's also a hunter too. So double, double. Uh... Yeah, there's a whole, like, there are like 50 hunting podcasts that come up when you search for that. <laughs> is that, is that, was that part of your strategy or just so happened that <laughs> that's just the way it worked out? No, no, the, the correct strategy would have been to pick a name with Flutter in it normally, but I'm like, we're the Flutter bounty hunters. So on the hunt sounds like kind of a neat name, but it's a terrible name for search engine indexing. Yeah. That's why I chose this one flying high with Flutter. I just kept thinking about, okay, Flutter's meaning about flying and okay kind of double point on this one yeah any place that i search for flutter podcast it's yours and it's all widgets those are always the two that show up now flutter 101 i thought they were up pretty high uh i don't remember seeing that one maybe it was in there somewhere yeah he's been on the show that that guy um i tried to get uh corin on by the way corin is the one hello corin is the one who did uh he does invoice ninja which i confused for the mm -hmm. revenue cat oh okay yeah invoice ninja i think um, I believe they're using Super Editor for some of their functionality because Hillel has has logged some issues and we've gotten some fixes and some features in there for him. Um, I'm not sure exactly which part they use it for, but I'm pretty sure it's in there somewhere. I think we should start to wrap up now. It's been a while, right? Give yourself a chance to rest. You digest all that sure. pizza, go pizza and uh, I don't know. I don't know if the uh, there was one more football game on. I might be able to catch the very tail end of it. We'll see. I'll go get the very end of the game, eat a bunch of pie, get fat, and then uh, get back to some package development. Speaking of that, there was no pumpkin pie at my Thanksgiving. I was a little bit upset. I should have uh, bought then, one. Then, then officially, officially, you have not actually celebrated Thanksgiving this year. Not you mention it. They said a turkey, right? Usually, that's hard to find. But well, yeah, turkey's a good start. But if you don't end with a pumpkin pie, that's just that's not really Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's just a day with turkey. But no need to have pumpkin spice, right? Yeah, well, I, I'm a I'm a fan of it. I know that uh, that makes me what like a what a basic white girl. That's the <laughs> definition of everyone who drinks pumpkin spice lattes. Yeah. You know, back in the day, back in the day, it used to be mostly pumpkin and less sugar. But over time, they've just turned it into this super sugary drink, and I'm like, I can barely taste the pumpkin. Can I get like more pumpkin, less sugar? But like, no, we have a pre mixed syrup that goes in there so you're stuck with all that sugar from starbucks right yeah yeah that's become um but if you go if you go almond milk instead of the regular milk you, you kind of get more of that pumpkin taste in there i thought we saw almond milk is more sweet than regular milk that's what i feel like when i drink it no i'd say it's i'd say it's very much the opposite almond milk almost tastes more like an, it has more like an earthy taste than regular milk um maybe oat milk you could say that Oat milk mostly is just kind of gross, I think. But almond milk is less, I think, less sweet. Um, and almond milk is generally a low-carb uh, milk, whereas regular milk, you'll, you'll still get, I don't know, 50 or 100 grams or something of sugar in there. Yeah, I know my sister is lactose intolerant. I remember, I, maybe we did. Was it, is silk almond milk? Is that what it is? What is silk? I think silk is soy. Maybe they make both. Maybe that's what it, it might was. Just be a brand name. There was name. something that she drank. My mom said, "Yeah, it's sweeter." And then I tried it. I was like, yeah, "It's just a little bit sweeter." And of course, at that time, I was in, into more. Well, sweet. also, I mean, so if you go some uh, half of the almond milk in the refrigeration section at the grocery store is sweetened, so I always get the unsweet almond milk. Uh, but 
if you obviously if you buy it sweetened, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have sugar in there. Yeah, I don't think she. I don't know if she actually bought sweetened. I thought the, I thought it's just almond milk. I don't think they actually had to add sugar to it. I thought it's just fine by itself. Yeah, defeats the purpose of milk. No, yeah. Well, go try it and go to your Starbucks, get some almond milk, and see what you think. Yeah, they also offer puppuccinos too, so I might walk, walk my dogs over there and <laughs> get a puppuccino. Have you seen those? <laughs> I haven't. I have no idea what that is. It's from what I understand, it's just basically one of those small paper cups full of whipped cream for your dog to lick. Can are, should dogs be having a bunch of whipped cream? Is that a good thing for a dog to eat? Uh, I guess it maybe the type that they have is okay. It's a good question. That's also something I thought about too. But since they promote it, I would think it's okay. Otherwise, I think they would be having a big backlash. No, that dogs falling over with oh. puppuccino attack. That's the same logic that a bunch of people use to invest in FTX, and look how that turned out. Okay, true. Also true. <laughs> <laughs> All right.